Michael Simmons, welcome to the talk show. Thanks for having me. This is dangerous because you you operate at a much higher energy level than I do. I'm going to try to stay calm, think first, and be positive. How about that? <laughs> now, you used to do a show with uh, our mutual dear friend, Brent Simmons, and you're of no relation. But wasn't that the the, the topic? of the, What was the title of the show? It was... Identical cousins. Identical cousins. Dear cousin. cousin Brent. But you weren't cousins. It's actually no relation. Maybe we were. Maybe we are. <laughs> the whole point. It's our identical cousins. Uh, I, if there's a loose theme to today's show, it'll be indie Apple platform development. I was going to say Mac development, right? That's it's because that's that's we're of an age where that's still what we think of. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of weird. I've been as I'm getting older, and you and I have talked about this. As we're getting older, we're old Mac guys, right? right? We're old Apple, old Mac guys, and yeah, it's it's kind of hard to describe it now because it's so different. Um, but you know, for those who don't know, you, uh, I don't, what do you have a title at Flexibits? Are you just Michael. I mean, I usually just say co-founder, right. but I'm kind of you know everything. In some sense, you are the director. Like it, that was my role at Vesper. You know that you direct the movie. Uh, maybe producer is a better word, but you 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 help organize and run Flexibits, who are best known for Fantastical. Um, and now everybody who's listening is like, oh, okay, Fantastical. Yeah, that sounds about right. Believe it or not, I think I told you this as well. I was a film major in college, so the producer-director thing definitely resonates with me. I, I always view app development as a craft of almost as if I were making a movie, of it being parts of the movie, and how does someone walk away you know, how do they feel about the app when they're done? So I really like the producer-director thing. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, that was my title at, at Q Branch for Vesper, and it, it works. And I'm surprised that it hasn't caught on more. And it's, you know, yeah. some people think it's cutesy, but it does work because movie making, it's an interesting thing where what does the director do, right? There's a screenwriter who writes a screenplay. And hopefully, you know, it, it, that's the starting point of any good movie is is a finished screenplay right and that's you know an app has yeah. sort of a plan and it doesn't you know it doesn't have to be in the same way that the same finished excellent award-winning screenplay in the hands of an entirely different director with a different cast could be in a, a, a not just a different movie but the difference between a good movie and a bad movie you know same thing with the plan for an app but you got it you know somebody makes the the, the design for the app and then there's programmers who make it real and designers who pixel perfect, you know, design icons and pick colors and shades of blue and, you know, everything that needs to be designed to make a great app. Uh, but somebody has to be there steering the ship, right? You know, you've got all these talented yeah. people on the bus, but somebody's driving the bus and deciding where to go. That's sort of you. Yeah. Yeah, sure. One of the things that always stuck with me from you know college when I was taking my film classes was if you don't have the proper ingredients and then the proper execution of those ingredients, then you know of the film, you won't have a great film. And I really think all app developers, no matter what app you're making, even if it's just a client or even if it's a new thing, you need to think through the roadmap of the app. It, it, are you just solving a problem and then you're implementing it and that's all? That's the only thought you've put into it? Or is it the actual journey of the app of where it's going to go and how it's going to make the user feel, you know, solving a problem or making them more productive or making notes quicker, whatever it is, right? But you have to have this vision and then the execution of the vision to really have a, I think, successful product. Hmm. Um, 
So Fantastica, let's start. We can start with Fantastica. They, uh, you guys have an update this week um, to support. I'd rather start with flying robot cameras. <laughs> Did you see that? Yeah, what everyone's talking about this week? <laughs> Did you see that? So yeah, we could start with flying robot cameras. So uh, Amazon <laughs> at their uh, much more exciting than Fantastic Hal, I think. Amazon at their fall hardware announcement, uh, and they have you know one thing that struck me yesterday trying to catch up on this. And you and I, we were friends. We chat. You know this that I I am struggling lately to keep up with the news. <laughs> it is it's difficult, right? <laughs> It is a blizzard of insanity. Right. I think part of it, here's part it of it, is. is I have a I have a big interest in in general, in normal times, in national politics and and national for lack of a better term, I love the phrase the national national affairs, right? That was like Hunter S. Thompson's desk at Rolling Stone. National the national affairs desk. I have a great interest in them, but in normal times I can mostly tune out and you know I, I I always like you. Were you were you a newspaper guy? You do you used to like to get the physical newspaper? Yeah, and it was the whole experience of you were focused on the newspaper, and that's it, right? It was right. the one mode of the paper. This the paper, right? See, there you go. So you know, I'm into it. The paper. The single greatest thing in newspaper history, in my mind, as as an artistic journalistic accomplishment, was this New York Times Weekend Review section, where. You could, you could be heads down, you know, like maybe you're, you're working for NASA, you know, making the space shuttle or, you know, go back to the sixties and, and you're trying to, you know, land men on the moon and, and you're working, mm-hmm. uh, 120 mm-hmm. hours a week, but you got a break Sunday afternoon. You're going to take a break. You want to catch up what's going on in the world. All you have to do is read the Sunday New York Times weekend review section. You know what I mean? And you could catch up Absolutely. and you'd realize, all right, you don't know everything, but the summary of the week. Yeah. You know what's going on. The, uh, the weekend review for national affairs right now would be like, it would be 700 pages long. <laughs> like there's no way that you, <laughs> there's too much going on. And I'm trying, like, I try to keep my, my toes on national affairs at that weekend review level so that I can spend my day obsessing over all the stuff that's typical during fireball fair. Right. And, Trying to do that while simultaneously staying uh, in touch with what's going on in the world at large with <laughs> it's, it's hard. No, no, but friend, friend or not, you've been doing a great job. I have to say, I know you're pivoting a little bit in terms of covering all the crazy, wacky, very important things that are going on. And to me, like you're, you're doing it, at least for me, I can only speak for myself, but you're doing it in a way where I actually get news from you and then I get your take on the news. Some things resonate, some things don't. We'll discuss it. You know that. But I think it's really good how you're almost giving a summary of the important stories mixed in with text so people don't ignore what's actually happening in the world, that, right? That is what I'm trying to do. And I, I appreciate Well, I see that work. and I appreciate you. So I, but just alone yesterday it's like just like well oh my god look at all this stuff amazon announced it's so much and i found a good verge summary of like here, here's the 13 biggest things they announced and it's like well 13's a lot but it was a good summary i felt like i was reading a ces roundup or yeah. something like i was reading the verge the verge did an amazing roundup as they do but i'm reading that thing and i'm just like come like it's ridiculous. Well, I don't know that it's ridiculous, but it is a lot. But it, a lot it, of products. it goes to show that Amazon is needs to be, you know, has to be taken seriously as a hardware company at this point and that their acquisitions of Eero and uh, Ring, among others, you know, that they did it. The, we can argue about Google's uh, acquisition of Nest and did that 
did did they sort of squander that? I think they sort of did in hindsight. Be- I do because too. To, I do too. And you know, I've got we have Nest thermostats here at the Daring Fireball World Headquarters, and I like them very much. In fact, we were delayed. <laughs> we were delayed recording. The whole reason we were delayed to start this show from when we were scheduled was uh, I'm carrying around a still a testing device on iOS 14. And it turns out I never actually signed into the Nest app on that device. And I wanted to turn the air conditioner, uh, the temperature up so that it won't kick in and make noise in the background. This is it. I, I'm sweating my family. This is what I do for my audience, the, the talk show audience. I sweat my family out, <laughs> turn the house into a hot box so that we don't get... But you have high-quality audio. Exactly. So, I mean, it's worth but it, But right? it turned out I couldn't sign in to the Nest app on this new phone, and I was very confused. And it's because me in our Nest app is not using a quote-unquote Google account. I have a Nest account, and they've... And because and, and this was a, a different device, I had to sign in again. And they have since made the, <laughs> the sign-in to your Nest interface... It looks totally normal if you use a Google inter- uh, sign-in. And I was trying to sign in with this email account that's not really a Google account in this interface. There is a little thing at the bottom that says, do you not migrated, still using a Nest account? I would say it is printed in like the pixels, like the non-retina point, pixels. Point, point one font? Yeah, like, <laughs> like a one-point font at the bottom of this screen. Uh that it's a miracle that anybody could even read it or notice it. It looks like a hair on the screen that says like, Oh, tap right here. If that's what you want to do. And that's, it took me five minutes, but anyway, we've got the nest thing and we like it, but I don't, I can't say anything that they've done with that. That wasn't there before they acquired it. Right. It, it doesn't seem like Google is under, under Google's ownership. Nest is proceeding at the pace they were when they were independent. Whereas, Eero and Ring doorbells and security things, if anything, seem to be accelerating faster under Amazon's acquisition than they were before. I completely agree. I was always on the fence between the Nest and the Ring, and then eventually I got a Ring around the time. Actually, it was right before Amazon acquired it. And anyway, the development has been incredible. Like it accelerated since Amazon acquired it. Now, I already know there's a lot of naysayers and cynics that'll say, well, that's because they're putting all their stuff in to try to spy and everything. Anyway, right now, I'm just saying, I definitely think Amazon has nailed it. And to be quite blunt, especially with that robot camera thing, I think Amazon, or at least Nest, it seems like the CEO who started the company, sorry, uh, Ring, CEO started Ring, they seem to really care about privacy or certainly they're certainly making me feel they care about privacy because the amount of privacy settings and control I have over privacy, I actually feel comfortable with my ring. Hmm. It's interesting. I don't have any ring products yet and we don't really have smart doorbells. We've got really dumb doorbells, (laughs) but uh, it's on the list, but the basic privacy concerns are there. And I know I don't want to devolve this conversation into it, but I know part of the controversy with the ring stuff is their partnership with, police and that they you know they've they've got things where they're willing to contribute footage from your ring camera to police and what are the rules for that it's it's it, there's a lot to think about it's sticky it's it's, sticky. it's very complicated i'm erring on the side of you know 
we have voice assistants. We have HomePods and an older, now it looks ancient, uh, uh, Amazon Alexa, uh, listen, you know, listening device, if you want to put it in cynical terms. Uh, so we have those. And again, mm-hmm. uh, we have, I have good friends who are like, no way am I letting any of those in my house. And I get it, you know. I'm one of those. I have to I have to raise my hand. I mean, I just, I, I almost think it's crazy. Go back to the 80s when everyone was like, oh, there's going to be all these bugs that the government's putting in your house. Now people are going paying money to put speakers that are connected to the internet that they specifically say they're gathering information. Yeah, okay, anonymous and blah, blah, blah. But I, I find it, I find the whole thing incredible that people are paying money to put this in their house. I get it. Um, <laughs> but I do think it's, you know, but it's me, <laughs> but it's also, you know, it, it, it it's like a lot of progress, you know, it, it's, I remember when it was really controversial when apps would phone home at all. Like, right. even if an app just auto, you know, you download an indie, an indie Mac app and every time it launches, it would call to its a server to see if a new version was available. And then if so, would let you know with the die, you know, be, is it before Sparkle and before you could even click a button? to upgrade in place, you would, it would just say, Hey, there's a new version of my app available. You know, here's a button that would go to the website where you would download the update and manually replace the actual app file. But people were, you know, there was outrage about it. And again, I'm not even saying I disagree. I'm just saying, I remember when it was controversial that it happened at all, you know, and people, Oh yeah. Um, you know, and people would run tools to detect, you know, little snitch, little snitch, little snitch. on Mac OS 10, still around and still a great tool. I don't run it, but I'm glad it's there. Um, I'm sure a lot of people listen. I've seen a lot of reports where it's detected some sketchy stuff. So I got to say, it really is a very valuable tool for the, you know, bad players. Right. But it's, you know, like the amount of that type of stuff that's going on now is a waterfall compared to the trickle that it originally was. And I, you know, I think we're going that way with devices that are, that have cameras and microphones. I mean, it's the amount, you know, and it's good to be concerned. I think the way to do it as people and as technically adept users who our friends and family come to for advice is for us to be skeptical, skeptical and cautious. But, you know, my eyes are wide open. I think, you know, 20, 25 years from now, we'll look back at 2020s number of, camera equipped microphone equipped devices in our lives and laugh at how few there are compared to how many there will be. It's that skepticism along the way that will hopefully steer it in a good direction. But I would say that Amazon's new ring camera (laughs) is seems it, if it works. And again, it's not like they said, Hey, you can, you can order it. It's so friggin' cool. They're not saying you can order it. So there's a vaporware-ish aspect to it's coming, quote unquote, next year. Who knows how, when next year that is. But it, you know, they, Amazon's credibility is pretty good. You know, I mean, if they say it's going to happen, I, I, I tend to believe it. It's not like Magic Leap, for example, right? The, the VR company down in Florida who's been soaking up billions of dollars in investment and, you know, the whole thing is sort of a fraud, I, in my opinion. Amazon's, you know, I agree. Am- I agree, and I will remain them nameless as well. But I agree with Amazon you. is putting their name behind this, so it seems like it's going to be real. And the idea is, it's it is a in-home flying drone that <laughs> you can make fly around your house, and there, and it has a camera, 
And the idea is kind of genius. So that let's say you go on vacation or you're just away from the house. Remember like when you could leave the house, you know, if we go back to being able to leave the house, you, instead of putting cameras every single where in your house, right? Like how do you, how do you cover your whole house with cameras? It seems oppressive and expensive and complicated and ugly, right? Because now what, what you're going to, it's going to look like the inside of a store with security cameras all over your house. This mm-hmm. idea that you could have this drone that moves all over the house uh, and has a camera and then you could just say, Hey, go look in my, go look down by the garage and the, drone would fly down there show you what's going on with the garage you could see that your garage door is closed and then uh, you know go back to your base it sounds fantastic it sounds like you know it's sort of like the iphone did where it feels not like we didn't think we'd ever have it but it feels maybe it's pulled five years from the future it does. And when you actually see the video, you feel like it's one of those proof of concept videos where it's like a Kickstarter project and it'll never ship. I don't, but it is Amazon and they say it will. Oh, it's good. I'm, 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 I, the way I've, I've been reading all the stuff I've dug into it, I'm pretty sure it's coming. I think, I think it's legit. Yeah. I do too. And, and will you get one? I, and the, the, the privacy angle is fascinating because it's actually, it, the, the camera is, uh, uh, it's like a, if you imagine this device as sort of a, uh, like a tack, the camera's at the sharp part of the tack, and when it goes into its charging base station, the tack goes into a hole, and the camera is therefore completely, not just like a little bit covered, it's all the way at the bottom of this cubicle charging base station, so that when it's on the base station, you know the camera can't see anything. Yeah, it's really well done how they did it, and I love that they integrated it into the design and into the whole kind of premise that, you know, it's capturing when it's flying, and when it's in its base, you don't have to worry. I also did want to say, um, while I told you I don't bring a speaker in my house, I don't cover my cameras or cover my microphones or anything. It's not like I'm over like, I'm not having anything in my house, but I just feel like, I don't I, I don't think I would ever talk to an Alexa speaker or a Google Home speaker, whatever they're called. Um, I just, isn't that it? Google Home? I don't remember what they're called now. Just, yeah, whatever. What what. Yeah. But I, I just, to me, having a speaker in my house that's always listening, like, I, I don't know. I just wanted to make it clear, like, I'm probably going to get one of these flying robot cameras. It's, un- it's one of those things that first I look at, I'm like, hell no, but I have to have one, I think. It, it, you know, the listening thing is unsettling in certain ways. But it is, it, it, I don't think people are nuts. Joanna Stern has been on my show, and I know Joanna's written extensively about whether you should or should not cover your camera, you know, with tape or with the third party thing that you can stick over your MacBook camera. Um, and it goes beyond the technology angle, which I tend to side on. Like I don't cover my cameras on any of my devices and I tend, I really do tend to trust all the software I have on them. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I also don't think people who do are nuts or wrong to do so, you know, and I, Oh, not at all. That's their personal comfort level and they're entitled to that. Sure. Right. And I totally get you can't beat the peace of mind of the physical security of a, a piece of tape over the thing or uh, a slider, right? Like, uh, so like, yeah. Um, like just, it just interests me. Like the new Peloton has a bigger screen in front of it. Uh, the, you know, the bicycle thing and the kid, you know, there's a webcam so that you can be seen and participate in these classes. And the camera has a built in slider. Um, 
And that's fascinating to me. And I can see why they do it, right? And it's not like, you know, you, you yeah. could say both, A, you could trust us without the slider, but we're adding the slider too, because then you, you know, you can trust it completely, right? And when there's a slider in front of the camera, when the lens cap is on a real camera, you know it's not taking a picture, right? It is, you don't have to trust the technology at all. And you can say, oh, mm-hmm. there's this path, uh, you know, through the T-whatever T security chip and the green light literally has to go on. And even if you had malware, the malware, there's no way for it to get into the security chip and the green light is always going to be on if the camera's on. And you can read security papers and totally believe it, right? But right. It, you could even be the person who wrote it. Like, it could be like me and you or the team at Apple who wrote it and you know, in this alternate universe, we're we're PhDs in, in mathematics, and we're completely convinced that we've got a mathematical proof that there's a secure electronic chain between the green light and the camera. And when the camera has power, this green light must go on. I still feel like even the people who made that and know it as mathematically secure still f- would feel better if they put their thumb over the camera, right? It's just intuitive. Yeah, well, every system's hackable. I think every engineer always right. knows every system is hackable, right? Yeah. Because someone could get into your house, get into your laptop, and bypass that system with something that they installed in your laptop. But if there's a cover that's a solid object, you can't really hack physics. Yeah. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I'm just I'm, with I'm tempted, and and you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions about this flying ring drone. Like, and the Verge had a good rundown of them. It's like you know, there's a lot of things Amazon hasn't talked about. Like, can it go up and downstairs? Presumably, you'd hope it could, right? It's like <laughs> we don't all live in we ranch houses. And well, how wouldn't it? It's a drone, right? So I mean, it could fly. We just have to. It would have to have some kind of flight control. But it looked like it had that from the video, right? I guess I don't know. It, <laughs> there's so many ways that this could go wrong, right? Like, you know, like imagine if you get it, it comes out, and you get one right away, and it's just like banging around like a drunk robot, you know, like banging into walls, <laughs> hitting things. Well, I'm thinking about unintended things. Like, what if you have a dog or a cat, right? right. And like. I don't know, the, the drone rotors somehow, uh, I don't know, who knows, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like there's lots that can go wrong in the home. I would imagine dogs are not going to be a fan of this thing, just based on my experience with what dogs are fans of <laughs> and not. Oh, they're going to go, they're going to go crazy over it. It's going to start seeing like videos, right. you know, ring robot flying camera videos of my dog attacking it. I I think drones are significantly quieter than vacuum cleaners, you know, like, uh, the the loudest drone is probably still quieter than you know a home drone. I, I'm not talking about like industrial strength stuff, but the you know uh, sure. the the loudest drone you might conceivably fly inside your house is going to be quieter than a, a vacuum cleaner. But it's on the spectrum of a vacuum. You know what is it that dogs don't like about vacuum cleaners? And now to have one flying around, I feel like your dog is going to be like, no way. That's just my own, but I don't know. I got to see Lots it. Of it is going fascinating. On. It, it really is. And I, the privacy angle, I think is, is just amazing. And I think it's good. I don't think, you know, I think that's an interesting balance where it's like, you don't even have to, we don't have to, we, we'll talk to you about the technology of our privacy and how we're protecting your footage and blah, blah, blah. But you can know this, this is where the camera is. And therefore when it's in the base station, the camera obviously can't see anything. Yeah, that's why I was saying with my Ring products, which I've had for a while, 
I've always really felt like I'm as a developer and as a product guy, I always like kind of know how a company cares about security. And they really, they always seem to make me being in control of what's shared or privacy. And, you know, yeah, they had some hiccups and they had to add two factor authentication and things like that. But I just feel like they've been really transparent about stuff. Uh, maybe not the police stuff. That's another topic, but right. I, th- to put, to put one of the key industrial design features is that when it docks, the camera is hidden and that communicates security and, and privacy so clearly. That's a big thumbs up. They did a great job. Here, let me take a break before we continue on with the show, and I will do our first sponsor break. Hey, let me tell you guys about our good friends at Squarespace. Oh, do I love Squarespace? And it is not just because they are a longtime sponsor of the show. I love Squarespace because they have a fantastic service and product. Squarespace is your all-in-one website service and tool and design app. Everything you need from registering a domain name to picking the design of the site to all the features of the site and making it just right. Oh, all of it is at Squarespace. All of it is excellent. And all of it is amazingly affordable. Everything is right there. Sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. No coding required. But if you do have coding skills, you can get in there and do stuff at that level. It really does scale all the way from the, I don't even know the difference between HTML and CSS, to somebody who knows how to write JavaScript. Anybody in that spectrum, Squarespace can be a great service for you. They have a great free trial you can check out. Go to squarespace.com slash talk show. Get started with a free trial. When you decide to sign up or somebody who you comes to you for advice and you steer them to Squarespace decides to sign up, just be sure to head to squarespace.com slash talk show and use the offer code talk show, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W to get 10% off your first purchase. My thanks to Squarespace for their continued support of the talk show. Let's just talk a little bit about Fantastical and uh, widgets and iOS 14 uh, and just sort of... Oh, all right, if we have to. Basically the news. All right, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I would say this. I would say... Let me preface the discussion this way. In recent years, I'm not quite sure when it started, but Apple has, you know, with the public betas for... Right. Summer releases. Apple's Apple's annual schedule has been locked in for a, a, quite a while. Where WWDC is June, they announce all their OS is for the year. They slate them for fall. September is the iOS month, and then Mac has some slack. We still don't know when Big Sur is going to ship. Uh, but then all summer long, developers certainly use the betas because they're looking to update their apps to both support whatever new features they think they can support for launch and make sure everything doesn't break or look funny, you know, when the new OS hits, you know, fix any issues um, with old stuff and then add new stuff to support new features. Um, Now they have public betas. So there's more people than ever maybe using these things, but when the actual OS is actually drop to the public, I think it's always interesting to see what the reaction is. And I think it's it, it it's often surprising. 
So I feel like this year, the big surprise is how enthusiastic the public is about widgets and shortcut customization for app icons. Uh, you know what I think the big surprise is? What do you think? iOS 14 launching the day after announcement. <laughs> well, we should talk about that. I, I, that's one of those things that sort oh, of slipped through the cracks on Daring Fireball. But I know, I mean, that, that just does not, that, that's never happened before. Never, ever, ever happened before. Right. So let's talk about that. You know, what, <laughs> how surprised were you when at the end, wasn't it at the very end of the announce of the event too? It was like an hour long event. Yep. They do the new products and it's like, okay, back to Tim. And it's like Tim Cook, you know, in, in this hallway at the inner circle of the spaceship in Apple Park. And he's like, you know, we've, I'm not going to do a Tim Cook impression here, but, uh, you know, we've, what a great day. We've also got uh, great OS launches that are sh- sh- shipping tomorrow. <laughs> See you next time. And then every, uh, every developer friend I know is like, what? Remember you started the podcast by saying I was high energy? Yeah. You did not want to be around me that day. <laughs> and it was, it was crazy because speaking of the whole producer-director thing, we had everything dialed in. We were counting on that week. We had betas, you know, everything was ready to roll, right? Because if you see, we shipped our widgets a week later, right? right. We were ready. Um, I know a lot of other developers, friends shipped on the day when, you know, next day. I get that. They, they wanted to get it out, be part of it. I get all that. But we had, we, we just had to have it right. We couldn't ship with bugs and then just deal with it. You know, we suffer, maybe, maybe not. But it was really, 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 really crazy, John. So why I... That I get it that this is an unusual year for Apple, right? Because of the reason it's unusual for all of us. And so there are, you know, because of COVID and whether it's a combination, probably some combination of Apple's own internal systems being uh, slowed down in some ways by remote work combined with everything affecting the supply chain in China you know, if, if, if we get new iPhones in October, even by the end of October, it's almost a small miracle that they're only that late compared to the usual schedule of a, you know, September 10th, 12th ish announcement, you know, and shipping by the end of September. Um, and right. that's sort of the anchor on the calendar that ties the OS release to and the normal schedule is these betas are coming out through August and you kind of get a sense. And last year was weird too, you know, where they kind of locked in iOS 13 early because it was buggy, really buggy. And, but they had to have an iOS 13 for the new devices. Um, and it's just, it's all very complicated, right? It's like, I don't even know where to, how to unwind it all here telling it, you know, like where the new phones always are locked to the latest version, right? There is no, there's hardware that doesn't have drivers. Like they can't ship the new phones with the old version of the OS. So right. whatever new products like are coming out have to have iOS 14. Therefore, iOS 14 has to ship come hell or high water. And like last year, that was a big problem. But they do. The general schedule is they announce a what they call a GM, which is like a you know a golden master, which is a term of art from back when when we were printing CDs, and I guess it goes back to the floppy era too, right? There'd be a golden master, but I think the the actual gold master was a CD thing. They'd they'd print the CD on gold because it was what more durable, and then that's what they'd press all the 
gazillion right, CDs right. from. Um, but they, you know, they have the GM release, but they would announce that at the event, right? That the normal schedule is roughly okay. There's a Tuesday in September, and they say the GM, you know, release is coming out later today or tomorrow. Developers can start to finalize. This is what's going to ship. And then the actual OS release comes out like 10 days later, like on a Thursday, the day before the actual new iPhones start hitting customer hands 11 days after That's the right. event. Um, so as a root, you know, and there's no rule, you know, and again, with all, you know, you can draw comparisons to our national affairs and all of the things that aren't written in law, but we've just sort of assumed that's the way, that's the way it's always been. You know, the president of the United States doesn't call into question the integrity of our elections with no evidence. Exactly. Right. Just the way it's always been. Right. right? It's just yeah. the way it's been. But, you know, technically there's no law against it. Right. So Apple has always given developers, you know, a week plus of time with the GM release of an iOS update to prepare uh, so that always. At least a week. So, you know, you, you can get your, your ones and zeros in order. And if you're trying to get into the app store for day one, uh, you, you know, you have a week or so to prepare. And this, this, this year, <laughs> you, you did not. Exactly. You know, I, I, I've been, as you have been, working with Apple for a really long time. And the thing is this. I have my critiques and all my problems, but I think something happened. They had to do this. I have spoken to enough people that, you know, it's not like, oh, we don't care about developers. We're going to get this out. We're going to make them scramble to heck with them, whatever. Like, I do think something happened. What? I don't know. What? It really is frustrating. What? This definitely impacted us, especially for a week having customers being so upset with us. Like, where's the widget? You know, thinking we're not releasing it or we're never, I don't know, whatever. But like, to me, it's just, it, it, I hope this never happens again. And I hope that this happened. Apple can improve their procedures and policies and schedules that it won't happen again because it was a bad experience for everyone. If you look at all the other apps, look how many updates they had to scramble to get out after their, you know, 1.0, 2.0, whatever for the widget because there were all these bugs, right? Yeah. So yeah, they had it out on launch day, but what did it matter? Now they're scrambling over the next week, which we waited a week to release to just get to where they were a week later anyway. Yeah. And it's like, why do, why do developers want to be there on day one? And part of it is, uh, I think pride, you know, part of it is promotion, right? If you have new mm -hmm. features, sure, right? So like the new feature angle, let's say widgets, right? Which are a, an altogether new feature. If you have spent a lot of time on widgets, you want to be there. And when people, users are upgrading and want to check out widgets, you'd and you've spent this whole summer working on them, you'd like them to be there right away. And then there's also that bug fix angle. Like if your app, has a layout bug in iOS 14 that's not there in iOS 13. And who cares, you know, let's not even say whether it's the OS's bug or your app's bug or just, you know, something changed, but it doesn't look right. You, there are certain bugs you can't fix until the new OS comes out, right? You can't fix it in advance because you might have to actually have the new SDK and you can't submit builds to the app store with the latest SDK until the OS is out. Right, and you can't even submit a build for iOS 14 until the GM of Xcode is out to submit anyway. Right. So it wasn't even like you could submit until Apple released that Xcode GM build. Right, right. So from a yeah, that's a good, that's a great point. So the developers need 
<laughs> the latest version of Xcode to build the thing to submit it. You can't do it. And there was confusion. This was so uh, helter-skelter, slapdash, yeah. I don't know what to call it, where there was actually some confusion after the event where there were two builds of Xcode off with, you know, Correct. with these real long, crazy version numbers, but off by one. And if you, and it was maybe even like a CD, CDN thing, a content delivery network thing where some people would click to download the latest Xcode, but get the wrong version. And they click the same thing that yep. somebody in a California clicked and got a newer version. And two people who thought they had the same new version of Xcode, only one of them could build and ship an executable that could be submitted to the app store. That's correct. And as you know, it takes a long time to build an app and, you know, distribute it. Right. right. So you're spending all this time to download Xcode. You're not realizing it's that off by one number. You're building it. <laughs> you're spending all this time. You're submitting. It. It's like, nope, not with the GM. And you're like, what? And then, you know, thankfully Twitter and all of our friends in the developer community figured out what it was. Right. It's sort of, you know, some aspect of this, even if yeah. you have a really good build system in place, it still is like baking a cake or a casserole or something. And it's like, you got to do the whole thing first. And only when it comes out of the oven, do you find out that you had the wrong version of the cake mix. You got to throw this one out and start all over. And when you're Absolutely. trying to do this thing and hit a deadline that's under 24 hours away when you thought you'd have a week, losing an hour or two hours to this is a lot of time. And I think it was more than an hour or right. two. I mean, based on some of the tweets, right. I was, yeah, the point still stands. Absolutely. Right. The, whole, the whole thing was very haphazard and not good. So I want, so why, you know, here's the big question. So with the hardware stuff, the actual products, the new Series 6 watch, the new iPad and the um, oh, every time I say the word, I, something is wrong with me. I say series, like the name mm -hmm. of the watch, and every device in my house kicks in with you know who's voice assistant. Yep. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I'm really <laughs> anyway. I kind of like it actually. It kind of like is a wake up call. Your S <laughs> six Apple Watch, <laughs> the new iPad, the new iPad Air. All right. Even though the, you know, I, I get it that Apple is always going to want to keep hardware, uh, under wraps. Even if there are leaks that are accurate there, that's just how Apple is. I don't blame them. And part of that is that the actual, uh, but the release of the OS isn't part of that secrecy, right? Like what, what would have stopped Apple from a week before? Not holding an event, not something that's like, hey, whole world, look at us, but just put it on developer.apple.com and tell developers in the same way that like when they go from beta 7 to beta 8, just say, okay, this is the GM release of iOS 14, you know, be prepared for this to ship in the next two weeks or next week, you know. Um, there was either something hidden in it that no one's found yet, like just something, I don't know, right? Like it might not be obvious now because it's out, right? So I don't know. Or, and or, it's, I don't just think it's Apple style. In other words, what if something happened at the event? What if, I don't know, right? right. Like, but I don't see Apple doing that. And I, I don't blame them for not doing that. I believe it or not, even with the week notice, because I'd be like, well, why didn't they release it a week earlier? I, I can understand why they didn't. What I don't get is why couldn't they have still delayed it a week? And even with the new hardware that was coming out, Okay, yes, I know you need it on the servers for stuff and this and that, but there, I don't know. There just could have been a little bit better mitigation of like, 
iOS 14 will be available in a week. If you're buying one of the new devices, you know, there might be some hiccups. I know you can't really put that into a message that's pretty, but I feel like there could have been a little bit of a way to delay that release still a week. I feel like there really could have been. I do wonder, and this is a total spitball. I don't have anybody who's told me there's any validity to this. Maybe I'm just crazy. But one thing people observed in the video was that all of the scenes of Apple Park, and there's a lot of them, you know, because they shoot there and sort of emphasize the sunny California climate. Um, that that event came at the tail end of some truly horrific uh, smoke in the air th- scenes in, all throughout that area of California. People are like, how oh, how yeah. did they get all this sun? Did they, you know? I guess the idea, you know, speculation, which isn't crazy, is that they filmed those scenes weeks prior, right? That these things aren't, of course, they're not live. You can tell by watching that these aren't live productions, but they probably have a bit more of a, a headroom than a casual observer might think. And I actually think they should shoot it weeks before, right? Well, there's no reason not right. to. Well, right? but I wonder. So here's where I'm wondering is I'm wondering if Apple was. Uh, vaguely worried that they might need to delay the whole announcement and the event because the fire because of the fires, right? And and or oh, I did they maybe originally think they would have it the week before and thought we should push? Maybe they did push it back a week. And huh. I don't know. It, it, that's reason. No, no, that's that fits. That fits because to have that also during the fire where people are worried and maybe even people were out of their homes and it was hairy scary and then it looks bad. The optics are bad in terms of like doing the announcement that week and people aren't around and maybe they had to push it out and that was the week we would have gotten. Maybe, you know, and that maybe. they, and that part of maybe. this, we, you know, and that is, I know one reason, you know, among many, but one reason Apple doesn't announce any of these events until much later than other companies. I mean, even WWDC, even in normal years, they announce the dates for their developer conference that attracts thousands of developers from around the world. And the around the world aspect is greater than ever historically, which involves uh, tremendous amounts of travel commitments, right? If you're, you know, traveling from, oh, yeah. you know, Asia or Australia or even Europe, you know, the, the cost and, and complexity of booking a week of travel to California is significant. And the earlier you could do it, the better it would be and probably the cheaper too. Um, but they kind of hold their powder until the last minute. And I think, you know, part of it is because they're Apple, it's just their nature. And part of it is because, well, you never know, right? And so this year, they never delayed WWDC. We think of it as being delayed because it came several weeks later than it usually is. But they never had to cancel the in-person WWDC. They never had to change the dates because they never actually announced them, right? I mean, we know right. that they had the, whatever the name is, the San Jose Convention Center booked. We know that if it hadn't been for COVID, it almost certainly would have been like the second Monday of June would have been the beginning of WWDC in San Jose. But because they didn't ever announce it, they never had to postpone it. You know, and so they don't announce these press events until like a week before. And I think part of it maybe was trying to wait out the fire because it would just be so inappropriate, you know, to have this. Here's here we are in Cupertino in sunny California while this actual skies are 
a hellscape orange, right? It just, it, you know, it certainly is. It certainly is poor optics. I agree with you. And you know, and then my thinking along these lines is, somebody would raise their hand in this discussion and say, "Well, wait, what about developers? You know, they're going to want to know." And that the the basic decision was, "Well, we'll just ship the day after the event, whenever it is, and tough noogies, you know." Mm-hmm. And that's it. And that's sort of what happened. Um, yeah, it could be. Either way, it was definitely out of character for them and definitely, definitely very bad for developers. And I wouldn't even say bad for users at the end of the day, right? Because there was so much like there were bugs, there was confusion, there were things being late. There were developers like us that didn't ship on time. Yeah. Um, just saying it was, it was definitely a very difficult release. Chaotic maybe, right? Absolutely. And I would say overall, iOS 14 is definitely better than iOS 13.0. I mean, remember last year, iOS 13 was only out for like five days oh. before iOS 13.1. I mean, it was like five days. I mean, it it, it was very confusing. And yeah. even iOS 13.1 was by the general standards of first releases of major new OSs, pretty buggy. Um yeah, iOS 14's, believe it or not, been quite stable and quite good. Yeah, there's bugs, especially with widgets, and you know they're 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 fixing them, and we're fixing them, and other uh, just it, it's very solid. I agree with you. I've run into some things. I use sharing sheets a lot, um, a lot. Yes, and I Me too. They're broken. I yeah, I've run into some things all summer long, and it seems like they've fixed some of them, but I still run into it sometimes. But but an app can get locked. It, it almost feels like a throwback to. A long time ago, maybe even before the iPhone, but like an app can with a share sheet open. If you, I I can, I still can't get it reproducible, but I'd be trying to use a sharing extension. And then all of a sudden the share sheet is there. Nothing on screen is tappable, right? It's just like a screenshot. Blank share sheet. Well, it's not blank. I can see stuff, but it doesn't do anything. It's like I've seen it where it's blank. It's as though the whole app is a screenshot, right? It's it just nothing. I can't make it go away. There's no way to dismiss it. I can switch to other apps, and if I switch back, it's still there in this state. And the only way to get out is to force quit the app. Oh yeah, I've had this with Slack. So if I try to share, like let's say, a crash log with one of my teammates. After the share happens, the whole screen freezes yeah. and you literally can't tap anything yeah. and then you have to force quit the app. Like, it's yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, I've, seen yeah, I've had that too. I've seen it in a couple apps. Um, and it's just, fe- I think it might be the app not being ready for, like, I think there's probably something that updated, we got updated with share sheets and the app like Slack isn't aware of how to like say, okay, I got it and close yeah. the, you know, close the value. I, I think, I, I think it's probably that because some apps it works fine, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and I do think it's gotten better at, throughout August. It was a real problem for me, like early August, um, more so on iPad. But uh, you know, it seems like it's gotten better. But I still run into it, even with the shipping version of iOS fourteen on I, iPhone and iPad. But overall, it's better. But it, it really, what a weird, yeah. what a weird release. Um, but weird anyway, release indeed. Widgets. People are nuts for widgets, and the other thing, nuts for widgets, and 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 it's related because it's about customizing the same area of the app, the 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 home screen. People are nuts for this new ability in shortcuts, where you can make a shortcut that just launches an app, and then the shortcut you can assign any icon you want. So what you could do is take, uh, let's say, Fantastic Cal. And you could put Fantastical in your app library and then make a shortcut that launches Fantastical. Name the shortcut Fantastical and put a picture of, 
Michael Simmons on the thing. And now all of a sudden I was thinking John Gruber. Right. <laughs> all right. Either way, you, you know, put a picture of, of you or me. And now all of a sudden the way, you know, it looks like, you know, and you have an icon on your home screen that says fantastic Hal. It's a picture of me or it's a picture of you or whatever. And yeah. you tap it and it launches fantastic Hal. And it's, it's as though you've customized the icon of fantastic Hal to whatever icon you want. Some people are going nuts for this and having tons of fun and doing, you know, entire themes. You know, I saw somebody posted a screenshot where they replaced the icon for all of their first screen apps with a photo of the CEO of the company behind the app. So like their Apple apps all had a picture of Tim Cook. The Amazon ones had a picture of Bezos. The Google apps they use had Sundar Pichai, etc. You know, Facebook and Instagram had pictures yeah. of Zuckerberg. People are going nuts for this. And then combine it with, of course, home screen widgets, uh, which is another way to, to de- you know, decorate and customize your own thing. I, people are going nuts for it. And I, I'm not surprised. And I think the reason I'm not surprised is I remember <laughs> the 90s on the Mac. And that people loved doing stuff like that. And I feel like we've been in an era where that sort of customization just isn't even technically possible, let alone supported, right? It just wasn't even possible that people, and maybe it's younger people and maybe people who weren't around for the classic Mac era, or maybe, I don't know, maybe there was, I guess there was similar stuff for Windows back in the day. Um, you know, like, like the way that you could customize Winamp and, all the various MP3 no, totally. players. People forget you about it. You just reminded me. Of, you, know, you just totally gave me a flashback to college where a friend of mine, believe it or not, I wasn't into Mac my whole life. I was an Amiga guy, you know, like a Commodore 64 Amiga guy. And when I got into college, a friend of mine had a Mac. And on his Mac, he had his hard drive customized with a BMW icon. <laughs> and I remember when I saw that, I was just like, that's so cool. No, really, like it's it, it's still in my brain where I just remember at that moment being like, how did you do that, Right. And that's what I think is going on here, right? It's the personalization, customization of your device to whatever you're into. Right. And I've seen, I, and again, this is one of those things I haven't really written about on Daring Fireball. My, my opinion is go, everybody go, do what you want to do, that, have fun with it. Um, I know some people are they're thinking, oh my God, I've seen all these screenshots. They're so ugly. This shouldn't be allowed. This is terrible. These people have no taste. This is awful. Um, uh, but it's their phone. It's their device. Other people right? thinking, so it can look like whatever they want. I've seen like. people thinking that you know brand managers that these companies are going to be upset and they're going to complain. Like, hey, we spent all this time on our our fancy uh, black square with a white U Uber logo for our Uber icon, and now people are replacing it. <laughs> um, I, I think they're overreacting. I, I think that you're, you're you know again they're not changing your phone. You're, they're changing their own. It's like it, it's like getting upset that people put stickers over the the brand logo on the back of their laptop screens, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. If anything, yeah, I think you've changed my mind. I think you've changed my mind. Cause but seriously, I, I was looking at a lot of these screenshots going, Oh, these are kind of terrible, but no, I really, I think you changed my mind. I think it's like, it's their device. If that's what makes them happy, like putting a BMW logo on their hard drive, right. Then let them be happy. Right. It makes them happy. It makes them unique. Uh, I totally think so. And I, I just remember back in the day that, my God, customizing your hard drive icon was the least of it. I mean, we, on the Mac, we had extensions that did crazy oh, stuff. Um, 
I remember the trash can. I know we had talked about this a oh, while yeah. back. The Oscar the Grouch. Right. That was my favorite, man. Yeah. I love that. Oh, Oscar. But you know, we had extensions. There was one called. Oscar. I'm going to forget this. I actually should have done the work. But you remember the way that um, the BOS looked? This was the yeah. John Louis Gussie's B company. And they, they had a, it was a very Mac like interface. Um, but their window style were the, the, the big difference was that their top of their windows, the title bars, which we've kind of gotten away from overall, but back when title bars were title bars, theirs were tab shaped as opposed to going the full width of the window. And so that's right. You know, and if you, it, they're just like, they looked like folder tabs and, and they would grow to the length of the name of the thing. So if you had a document named Michael and I had a document and my copy was Michael is a big fat idiot, my tab would be longer because my file name is longer and yours would be shorter because it would just shrink to fit the name Michael. Um, but anyway, there right. were extensions for the Mac that would you just—I forget what it was called—but it was it, it would just turn all your windows. They would just you you'd put this extension in your folder, restart, and then all of a sudden you'd when you restarted, all of your Mac windows looked like B windows. Um, I remember that one too. And then of course, remember I can't forget Conflict Catcher, which then managed all the extensions, oh yeah. right? Uh, his name was Greg Landweber. I remember. I don't remember the name of the first version of. Oh God, that name totally rings a bell. Right, Greg Landweber. And then they he collaborated with someone, and they turned it into something called Aaron, I believe. That's my memory of it. Oh, Aaron, Aaron, that's right. right. Yeah, because of Copeland, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, and so yeah, yeah that's right. Aaron was an extension that took what they did. The first version made it look like one way and one way only, exactly like B. And Aaron made it so that you could style your windows to look however you wanted them to look. And you're being right, and then, a, and then Kaleidoscope, right? Arlo Rose. I'm starting to like remember like the whole path of all this, right? Well, Kaleidoscope though was different though because it wasn't about changing all of your windows. It was Kaleidoscope were like widgets, you know? They called them gadgets, I think. Remember? Okay, but it didn't it didn't change window themes uh, and stuff. I forget. I'm, it might have been a different Kaleidoscope. Back to Aaron though, because Aaron was cool. Now I'm remembering. Yeah, but this. Arlo Rose had definitely had something to do with this. He might have been the, his collaborator on Aaron. Now that I think about it. But anyway, the basic idea was you could get an extension and then it would customize everything, make the buttons look different, the menus, the colors, and none of the sounds, none of this was supported by Apple. You know, it was all sort of hacking the, the OS. And then Apple sort of saw the enthusiasm people had for this and built in, uh, into classic Mac OS, uh, something called the appearance manager where they could have appearance manager extensions and officially supported, they announced like five of them and they were, wasn't just like different colors of the same look. They were radically different. And there was one called Gizmo that looked like, remember this? I I will definitely put this in the show notes, but I do. Gizmo looked like, I mean, how would you describe Gizmo? I don't even know how to describe it. People wouldn't believe it if I said it. So it was sort of like, it's so hard to describe. It was it. It would take the user interface, and well, there were two gizmos actually, because wasn't there one that was a messaging app too? Uh, but that's not the theme. The theme was like it was like Sesame Street style, like you know, 
You know those toys at the pediatrician when you, when I, at least when I was a kid, there'd be like these wooden toys with like spirals and slides, and and you would just sort of move like an. Oh, okay, I know. Like I'm thinking like the candy stripe stuff. Yeah. It would have all like the yeah. the, the like blue and red, yeah. and, and everything was like very glossy it, and candy. It colored. was crazy. It made your Mac look like a circus. You know, every window, uh, and there was one called High Tech that was big platinum. Platinum was another. Well, one. platinum was the one that wound up. Platinum was the default. Platinum right, was, the was the default. default. Um, but it, but, oh, but but the idea was that it would be one of several choices. The the high tech one was was like what we would now call dark mode. It was a very dark, almost black w- interface. But the 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 chrome was much thicker. It looked sort of like what you would think the computers would look like in the Judge Dredd movie, right? And it's there was one that was like a blueprint or a drawing board. Oh, you remember yeah, that one? What was it called? Uh, I, I want to say it was called drawing board, yeah, maybe <laughs> or blueprint or something like know. that. Remember that, and everything was like sketches, right? Everything looked. It, it actually they came back to that same look and feel with the icons for like Xcode nowadays, right? Where everything looks like an architect's blue paper with white pencil sketch, but your whole interface yeah, looked yeah. like that, including your menu bar. Um, That's right. And those things, they literally, they were from Apple. They were going to be first party supported. And there was an API where third parties would be able to write their own extensions for it. They, they effectively Sherlocked the third party hack to customize the interface. And then this was all getting ready to ship right when Steve Jobs came and next reunified with Apple and. <laughs> They looked, I think I would love, this is one of those, like on my top 10 list of meetings, I wish that I could have been a fly on the wall for would have been the meeting where Steve Jobs was presented with these appearance manager themes, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like they absolutely, they've got this OS that they didn't even make that they, you know, and they, you know, the, the next people who now were running Apple, but they knew they needed the company to depend upon for years to come before Mac OS 10 would be ready to ship. And it had all of these themes <laughs> and they just deleted them all. They just shipped it at the last moment with nothing but the platinum theme and no, they, they like took out the mechanism to load the other themes but yet there still was an appearance manager subsystem. So they had this whole complicated set of, they they made making interfaces so much more complicated because the right way to do an interface as a developer was to support the appearance manager, which meant not being able to make any assumptions about like what the windows or the buttons or the menus would look like, right? And then they That's shipped right. one theme and one theme only. <laughs> So you had to support. Throw it all away. You had to support an infinite number of themes for a system that wound up wound up shipping with one theme and one theme only. But anyway, this Spe- sort of thinking of a people, fly on the wall. Mac oh, users sorry, customizing yeah, yeah. their icons. Oh my god, that's all we we used to spend half of our days just customizing our icons. That BMW icon, I'll never forget. Like when I saw that, that's actually what got me to go. Oh my gosh, this Mac thing is cool. Oh. Like. Simple hard drive icon. You know what we used to do? We used to have, there was an app called Folder Icon Maker. And I don't remember. Oh, man. So what Folder Icon Maker would do is, let's say uh, I have a folder where I know I'm only going to put BBEdit files. I could drop BBEdit's application onto Folder Icon Maker, drag and drop. And Folder Icon Maker would spit out an icon that was a standard system folder with a BB edit badge on the folder. 
and then I could take that icon and paste it onto, or I guess if you wanted to, I think it would even just spit out a folder that already had that icon on it. And then you it could badged it. Right. So you could make folders that had badges with whatever you wanted on them. So the, you know, a big, a common one would be to badge it with the application, you know, that would be inside. And in fact, it, it, it became so popular and such a standard thing that apps would ship with inside a folder, uh, with a badge already on it. P- develop, you know, folder icon maker became so standard <laughs> that that, cause that was the way That's back funny. then we didn't just ship naked apps that you put in an application folder. Typically an app would come in a folder and in the folder would be certain support files, right? Like, so if Photoshop read me's and things well, like or that. extensions, right? Like where was, yeah. where did the extensions for Photoshop go? They went in a folder named extensions at the same level as the Photoshop application. So you're at, you know, the typical way for a well-organized Mac user to organize their applications would be that if you had a applications folder inside that folder would typically be folders. There'd be a BB edit folder. And in the BB edit folder was the BB edit app and the BB edit extensions and scripts and the readme, et cetera, you know, and, but, Right, all of these auxiliary files right. that were organized in their own folders. Right, but instead of having plain folders for all those things, we would badge them all. It was fantastic fun. Oh, we loved it. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, it was, and that's, that's, that's somewhat similar to this, right? You're putting yeah. an icon on something for an app that's recognizable to you or that's personal to yeah. you. Uh, so I think it's great fun. I think it's completely harmless. I think anybody who's rolling their eyes because they think what people are making is ugly. I, I made tons of ugly stuff. I think it's great. I think it's so great because to me, it gets people involved in their own user interface design at, at a recreational uh-huh. level. And it has them thinking about it. And I just think just thinking about it, period, like... If you just think it would, if you just think it would be fun if I could change the icon of Instagram, what would I change it to? And the answer is anything you want, really. Just pick any image you want and make a shortcut and use that image as the icon and set the shortcut to just launch Instagram. Boom, you've got a custom icon for it. Um, it just makes people think like an interface designer. And whether that's actually something you have any aptitude for at all, doesn't matter if you think it's fun. I and I still think it it makes you a better user just to even broaden your mind to think about it at all, right? Even if like three weeks from now you're like, oh my god, what did I do to my iPhone? These, these icons are horrible. I'm going to get rid of these shortcuts and put the real apps back. But at least you suddenly have an appreciation for how hard it is to pick a good icon, right? Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of these. Uh, some are good, and some of those are showing that that's why there's uh, not everyone can be a user interface designer, though. Right. right. But it, <laughs> there's some that you're sort of like, man, but to that person, they like it. So what's the harm? It's fine. Right. And I, you know, and I think it's it, it. So, like, again, I go back to decorating your hardware with stickers and, and people, you know, honestly, if you went somewhere back, remember when you could go and meet people, but if you just surveyed a thousand people, like at a theme park or a baseball game, you know, and just took a thousand random people coming through the turnstile and asked them, Hey, can I see your phone? And you just want to see the back of their phone and you document what case they have out of a thousand people. You, you easily, I, I honest to God think you might get at least 900 different cases, right? You, the number of people, yeah. who, you know, there's that much 
expression of personal taste in the back, you know, what people choose to put on their phones, the way people put stickers on their laptops. I have owned a lot of laptops over the years. To my recollection, I've never once put a sticker on one, but I don't, I just don't want a sticker on mine, but I don't hold it against people who do. And I totally get why people do. And I've also never gone to a school with a laptop and had to worry about like, Hey, you know, uh, three of my classmates all have MacBook Airs, and it's very convenient when they're closed and sitting together to know that the one with the whatever sticker, uh, you know, the James Bond sticker is mine. You know, yeah, I get it. But it the software stuff is even better because at least you don't have to worry. Like if you decide you don't like your custom icon for Instagram, you don't have like glue to <laughs> peel off, right? <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of it is interactivity, right? People have seen their phones as these apps that they run. And now in a way, not that they're beginning an app developer, but they're sort of getting into, oh, I can change something on the screen that I never used to be able to change, right? It's almost like a um, inquisitive thing, I think, also. And I think that's very interesting. Yeah, I told, you know, and it's, it, you know, widgets are along the same line. Let's Let's hold the thought, though, on widgets. And let me talk about our next great sponsor, of this episode. It's our good friends at Feels, F-E-A-L-S. Short name would be a very short tab in a BOS window. Um, Feels sells premium CBD and they deliver it directly to your doorstep. Do you experience stress? Do you have anxiety, chronic pain, maybe trouble sleeping more than once a week? You are not alone. Many people do. CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, sleeplessness, uh, just take a few drops of seal, feels, put it under your tongue, and you can feel the difference within minutes. Are you new to CBD? Most people are. It's a new thing. Uh, feels is right there with you to help you out, make you feel, you know, you're new to it. You don't really know the details. They have a free hotline. You can call them on the phone or text message. And I always say that's what I would do. I mean, if I, anytime I need customer support, chat before talking, but they've got both, whatever you're happier with, they're happy to talk to you. You tell them what you're looking for, they will tell you what they recommend. Uh, help guide your personal experience. Uh, there's no high, no hangover, no addiction. This isn't that sort of thing. It is the same fundamental, you know, chemicals, but it's this is prepared in a way that doesn't uh, doesn't get you goofy. Um, and they have a membership program. Join the Feels community. You get Feels delivered to your door every month. You save money on every order. And if you don't like it, you can pause or cancel at any time. They are completely confident. They're not trying to trick you into something that you can't get out of. They think you're going to be happy. They're just making it easy and helping you save money by doing so. So here's what you do if you're interested. Go to feels.com, F-E-A-L-S.com slash talk show. And just by going to that URL, feels.com slash talk show, you can save 50% on your first order with free shipping by becoming a member. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash talk show. And when you become a member through that URL, you save 50% on your first order and get free shipping. So that's like more than 50%, really. Anyway, my thanks to Feels. Check them out. Great company, great product. All right, widgets. That's the new. That's the other thing, man. Oh man, I, I. People have been asking for this. This is one of those things where it's like, okay, I, I get it. People are happy to have all these widgets. People are customizing widgets. People are having fun with it. People have been talking. The, the Android people's heads have to be exploding 
right? Because <laughs> the right. Androids had widgets on their home screens, I think, since they started. And if not... I saw some ridiculous tweet that was like, this iPhone looks like my Android from 2016 or, yeah. or something like or that. Or probably was, longer, was like 2011 or something. Is it something. longer? I don't know. Is it longer? Yeah. But uh, I don't know why Apple took so long to do this, um, but they did. They've had things called widgets, and this is where it starts to get a little confusing. And I'm glad they didn't change the name. I think widget is a good name for this thing. Uh, I think the fact that it's catching on, this is one of those things too, where my son, uh, you know, it, we, we have an interesting relationship on technology where he thinks, you know, because my primary interest isn't games that I'm out of touch. <laughs> And I've been writing more about games recently, so I've had a lot more to pick his brain about. But he, even he gave me, and this is seriously like within 24 hours of iOS 14 getting released, he's like, hey, have you heard about this thing with the widgets? And I'm like, "Right, yeah, I have. Let's, you know, yep. you know this is actually what I do. And he's like, well, I don't know. And he said it like in a way like, I don't know, you don't <laughs> seem to ever know about the cool stuff. So I just figured maybe you didn't know about the widgets. Um. It's awesome. I, you know, I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know, you know, it, there's obviously a lot of, you, you could speak to this, but I, I think Apple's put a lot of care into making these things customizable, but yet low energy, you know, and that they're not going to yeah. suck your battery dry. Yeah, the canvas is great. I mean, it's definitely great for a designer like me and an app guy like me as a, what are we going to make for the app to do? And then it's even better for the user because they get to have the best of their app on their home screen. And, you know, and, and Fantastical to me is pretty, what do you guys have? Nine widgets? 12, 12 actually, widgets. and we're, we're adding some more that didn't make the cut for launch. Yeah. So we have 12 currently and there's more coming. So, you told me that I saw, I know you previewed, you sent me the video, you know, and it's like, my first thought is that seems like too many just as a number, right? Right. But yeah, sure. you go through, number one, I think Apple has a pretty good interface for discovering this, right? Like getting into yeah. jiggle mode and then there's a big plus button at the top and that's where it says what widgets and there's, you can scroll and look through available widgets and then there's a nice obvious you don't have to pull down to see it once you're in this mode. There's a search field. You could just start typing F-A-N, and it'll show you the Fantastical widgets that are available. Um, I know I wrote this. I know you and I have talked about it. This comparison to Legos is, to me, very apt because it's like, okay, you can say 12 widgets for Fantastical, all related to calendaring and reminders, is too many, but like once you see them, they all sort of make sense. It's like, oh yeah, this one would just yeah. There's of course there's three different sizes, and so you need three different ones. Where if you just want to see a list of what's coming next on your calendar, here's three sizes, and that's three of them right there, right? That's right. You know, maybe you want yeah. to see a whole month. You want to see that five week grid calendar month view. Well, now you have you need a couple sizes for that. It's like looking at Legos. You can say, well, my God, there's 18 different pieces. But once you look at them spread out on your table as you're putting it together, it, it you know, you're like, well, of course there's different sizes because you need a long one, you need a short one, you need a, you know, the big square one and you need the long skinny one, et cetera. That's right. 
Yeah, when we were designing it, we were, you know, we had a small one that we were like, here's the funniest part. One of the features we get, our biggest feature request for iPhone, literally the biggest is, can you put the date on the app icon? In other mm. words, Apple's calendar app can show the date dynamically, right. right? Changes once a day. We can't do that. Third-party developers don't have the ability to change the icon di- dynamically. As you know, third-party developers had the ability to put in custom icons that you could change manually. Right. But that's it, right? So when... When the widgets, iOS 14 widgets came about, one of the first ones we did was, well, we're going to put a date, right? A small date. Yeah, it takes up four spaces versus one icon, but now it's a date on your home screen that can launch Fantastical, right? We knew that that was like one that would people would love. Right. But as we started to go, okay, what other small ones can we do? Okay, we can do an up next. We could do a calendar. We can do this. Then we made the medium. Okay, which, which parts of that can go on the medium? We mixed and matched. The large. And as the design was happening, I in my head said, wait a minute. We're putting together all these that we think are logical, but these widgets are great because you can pick as many as you want. I don't know if you know also, you can stack our own widgets or one apps or multiple apps. Like you can take multiple Fantastical widgets and put them in a stack and then swipe between the widgets in a single stack. Yeah, yeah. And you can actually almost create a scrolling month that way because you can just put multiple lists and then have the list show different calendar sets or different attributes. Anyway, the point is, as we were doing all this, it, it, it light bulb went off in my head that it's like, well, okay, we're putting together all these and saying these are the best 10 or 12 or 15 uh, scenarios, configurations. Well, okay, let's start making the ones that then users might want to put together. So you could take a small and a medium and put them together and get your best view or two mediums to equal like a large and get your best view or two larges and so on and so forth. And that's that was the that was kind of like then the guiding light of widgets for us was let's make all the tools that users will want and then they can pick their favorite widgets in the layout that they want. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it really shows. And to me, however complex that might sound, hearing it when you see it, it it's very very clear. And it, you know, like in a well, if you and especially if you already know what you want to see, right? That's right. You know, and it's like, oh yeah, I would, I would pick this piece and that piece and snap them together. And now I've got what I want, which is this, you know, uh, two icon high by three wide thing at the top that will show me all of my agenda right there. And, you know, I, I, I don't even think, I know, like, I don't even think we talked about it. I just think it's so obvious from the get-go that Fantastical in particular was a candidate to go really deep into widgets right from the get-go because of the nature of the app, right? It is. That's right. This, I mean, it's, it's, it, some of the analogies between digital world electronic calendaring and real world calendaring are very different, but a lot of them are sort of the same. And that basic idea of what is, what, what's going on for me today? What do I, you know, I need a glanceable thing and it is sort of foundational to all of it, right? It's the same as, it, you know, it, it's very much the same as the needs of somebody a hundred years ago who was doing it all on with a pen and paper. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when we started making Fantastical back in like 2010 is when we started. That was the skeuomorphic period, if you will. And one of the things, it was actually good that we started around then because I think very hard, very hard about like, what's the real calendar in the real world versus a digital calendar on the device. And I think it's really important to make sure that they're different, but that they serve the same purpose, which is what? Keeping you on time, right? Keeping you apprised of your meetings and your tasks. And I think the digital space allows us so much more 
so many more tools to actually give the user to let them be more organized. Things that we can take over the heavy lifting from as developers and have the user just go, okay, well, there's a date and a calendar and a list that that's familiar to me. But what they don't realize is all the other stuff, how they're all intertwined with the app, with the calendar sets, with the notifications, with the accounts, right? There's all this stuff that it's standing on the shoulders of, but at the end of the day, it's a really familiar display that keeps them organized. And that's what I think widgets do quite well. Right. And, and then the combination effect with all of the other widgets you might have. And will, you know, and again, we're only like a week into this, right? Who knows where we'll be in a couple months, but the basic idea is it lets the user design their own home screen. And that's right. And again, people are going to make decisions that I would find distasteful or confused. Like, (laughs) why would you want that? But that's not for me to decide. And I know, you know, that I do things that, you know, like if you look through my field notes notebook here, you might think, well, these, these are the notes of a crazy person, right? This is, a, this is somebody who needs to be locked up, you know, because it's, they're not really meant to be understood by anybody else. Like, why would anybody write these things down? Um, you know, that's the way you've set up your home screen. It's, I, but it really gets people thinking like, an interface designer. What do you want? Do you want a big clock? Do you really need to know the time? Do you not wear a watch? Do you want a big clock on your iPhone home screen all the time? But it really does sort of, I, I find it so exciting that people, I, not that, that I'm using widgets so much yet, but I find the enthusiasm that so many people clearly have for this feature, this explosion of enthusiasm for it to be so exciting. Cause I just think that it's the best, of the Mac mentality going back to 1984, that computer for the rest of us, that you can design your own computer stuff, you know, that you're not just locked into this design that, that the people who made it do. You can snap your own pieces together like Legos and make a weird Lego spaceship that Lego would never sell as a kit, but it's your spaceship and there's a reason for it. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, it's almost like, um, you know, what is it? This is my rifle. There's others like it, but this one's mine. Like, I think people actually end up saying that it's like, this is my iPhone, right? right? It is mine. There's many like it, but this one's mine. And then they get into that whole idea that, okay, this is my iPhone now. I don't have to have this thing that looks like everyone else's. I can make it work and look and feel exactly the way I want it to. Right. And it's, you know, like your home screen can sort of start to take the weird shape of your weird mind, you know, and ultimately... (laughs) At some level, all of us inside of our heads, it's weird, you know? And oh, yeah. Absolutely. And you can start designing a little thing that reflects it. And I think it's very cool. Um, I do think to, at a technical level, part of, hey, why not till now? I think that the fact that these are all with Swift UI and it has to be Swift UI um, is part of that story, right? That this is, you know, this is the fruition of Apple's Swift UI many years long strategy that we're only in the middle of starting to come to fruition, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what about the, the, the last thing I'll talk about on this point is that the confusion between the old style widgets and the new widgets. So they call them both widgets. I touched on this a few minutes ago. The new ones are the ones that everybody is loving and having fun with and has exuberance for, and you can put them on any home screen you want and drag them around. The old ones are the ones that could only be when you swipe over to like screen zero, 
right? When you go, if call it the today, they call it the today view, actually. right? But I always think of it today as view. if if your screen's if your main screen is screen one, this was the one that's to the left. It's like screen zero, and there's no apps. You can't put apps on screen zero. Today view, whatever you want to call it, it you know, those widgets still exist. And it's like, they do. I guess because they can't, you know, people who are relying on them in other apps, they can't, you know, but they're a totally, they're a totally different thing. It's not like, oh, this is a new version of that thing. The only similarity is that they are called widgets and they basically are the same idea of a, a widget of information. But technically, so two reasons. Oh, well, sorry. Two reasons why they still exist is just that I think they're still called classic widgets. I think that's what the name they get. That's what we call them is classic widget. But I think they exist because of things like home automation, right? If you have um, a, a light that's being controlled by this button and you want it on or off quick, the new widgets can't do that. Hmm. Ah, because the new widgets can't really be interactive. Correct. But the old widgets could. Yes, yeah, so, or, or like the Tesla app for the Tesla car, right? You could tap it and it does stuff with the car or whatever it is, anything connected. Yeah. And the new ones cannot do that. Yes, there could be a Tesla app or a, a light app or a home automation app that is a new widget, but you tap it, it then opens the app, and then the app still has to do something. It's not an instantaneous interaction. Mm. So I think those are still around because without those, you lose some really, really, really big functionality from the iPhone. And oh, that's interesting. I didn't think about that. I didn't think about the fact that the old ones had the yeah. interactivity. I, I've been thinking about the fact that the new ones don't, but the old ones did. And I think, and why is that? I think they just haven't gotten there yet, right? I hope they do because even our old widget, I, I still keep our old widget, our classic widget around because we actually have a calendar view that you can tap around the days and then the list changes. Right. It's just like the fantastic Helen app view. And we have, you know, if you tap and hold, it adds to that date and it's very, very interactive. And we would love to do that with the new widget. So I really do hope that's coming. All right. Let us um, break here and thank our third and final sponsor of this episode, our good friends at Linode. I say Linode. I used to say Linode because it looks like Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E, but it's Linode because it's uh, a node-based hosting for Linux. Ah, but I used to also sense. say Linux <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I swear to God, and you could, I swear to God, you could take it to the bank that for years when when it was a new thing and it was like the up and coming. Hey, some cra- crazy guy in Finland is making his own Unix offshoot. I thought it was called Linux for years, and it turns out it's Linux. And anyway, the company is Linode, I believe. Uh, (laughs) And it is my favorite cloud hosting company. It is where I host Daring Fireball. It is fantastic. They're actually, their headquarters actually are right here in Philadelphia, which is amazing. Uh, in terms of being a small world and not maybe not where you'd think a company like Linode would be headquartered, but they are. Uh, but they have 11 data centers worldwide, all literally worldwide, uh, all of them with enterprise-grade hardware, all of them with great network support. All Everything you get, SSD storage, down the line, everything is great. Uh, but while they can scale up to truly massive needs, they also have nanode accounts that start at just five bucks a month. I'll sp- here's a spoiler right here. Use this plan uh, promo code Talkshow twenty. You save twenty bucks. You get twenty dollars credit towards your next thing. At the the five dollar a month plan, that's four months free, and it is a great plan, like a hobbyist level plan. You'll never run up against the limits. It's fantastic. 
four months free just by using that code TalkShow20. Uh, also, they have a new thing this year called uh, Object Storage. It's their S3 compatible, redundant, highly available storage option. So if you've got code that hooks into S3 and you want to switch to Linode for the storage, you can do it. It's API compatible, super reliable. They've been it's been running all year. Uh, big hit. It's like one of their big new features of the year. Anything you want to do, they've got one-click installs of popular apps like WordPress, uh, game servers for Minecraft. I always mention become the most popular parent in your kid's circle because you can hook up a game server for Minecraft or whatever other game they play and have all the all their friends palling around on a private server. Uh, really great. A lot of fun. Makes you a big hit in the, uh, amongst the kids. Uh, or if you play yourself, even, you know, it's really great and it's a great solution for, you know, as low as five bucks a month. Um, anyway, great company. They also are hiring. You can go to, uh, lino.com slash careers to find out more. If you are the sort of person who is even thinking about looking at that careers page, you know the sort of jobs that Linode is hiring for. Um, but go check it out. It's a great company. And remember this, you get a $20 credit by using the promo code TALKSHOW20. And uh, the URL to go to is linode.com slash the talk show. I got to interrupt and tell you unsolicited, and I'm sure you didn't know this, we at Flexibits actually use Linode. And you're a happy. Is it okay for me to say that? Of course. And you're a happy customer. All right. Well, there you go. There you go. Thanks, Linode. <laughs> it's really it's a great company. It's one of the, I said Linode too. Yeah. I always say Linode. It looks like Linode. I, Linode. I don't even think yeah, that's Linode. crazy. I think you kind of have to know. But you know, maybe I was yeah. maybe it was my dumb ability to mispronounce almost anything that thought Linux was Linux for years. But I don't think Linode. You know, I don't know. <laughs> They're good guys. I do know that. Good guys and gals. I love them. They're, they've been really solid and good. Uh, let's talk about the indie development ecosystem. Let's talk about pricing first, because that's really it, right? What does it mean to be an indie developer? What I'm talking about, and, and you know, I, it, it almost seems crazy to have to define it, but I'm talking about small companies. Maybe it's one person. Maybe it's 10, 20 people, right? Maybe it's even more than 20 people, but... By the scheme, certainly of today's companies like Apple and Google and Amazon, small companies that are making software and making money through the software that runs it as a profitable business, right? And making cool apps that users like to pay for and use and do use and go forward. Um. I, it's of always of great concern to me because it's, it, it is, I, it's not just personal in that I have friends who do this and I want to see them survive, but it's also very selfish in that what I, how I spend my day every day and what I use to do my work revolves around, uh, up to date, thriving indie software on all of the platforms I use. Um, but it is it, it is counterintuitive because personal computers are more popular than they've ever been, and people of everybody is spending more time on them than they ever did before. But in a lot of ways, I think it's harder to be an indie developer and to make a 
make a business out of it than it ever has been before. And it's so counterintuitive, but I think it's almost undeniably true. Do you? Yeah, it is. It is. It is. As much as the market has grown and the tools have grown and the, I guess, customer base has grown and the opportunity has grown, it is absolutely positively a very, 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 very hard thing to do. Part of it is that pricing has changed so dramatically. And I think, you know, again, it's, I mean, let me put on my old man hat, but in the 90s, software was so expensive compared to today. It's really hard to get people's heads wrapped around it. You know, that, you know, you would buy a word processor and it would cost $199. And that was just version two. And when version three came out, it would, you know, you could upgrade, but you'd have to have a license key for the old one. And the upgrade was $129. Apple's OSs used to cost $129. (laughs) Like if you wanted to update from like Mac OS 10.3 to 10.4, you'd have to pay like $129. Software was expensive. I remember. And it, but it made money and it kept companies afloat. And, the downward pressure on pricing and what consumers think is a fair price has gotten so low and it's been, for lack of a better word, perverted by how much is quote unquote free and, you know, monetized in different ways. You know, that if you get all of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and you can't pay them. You there's nothing. There is no way. There is no pro option for Facebook where I can pay ten dollars a month and get a better version. You can't even pay, and you get all that for free. And you want you know twenty dollars for a text editor or whatever the name. Right. You know the the thing is, people think, well, that's crazy. This is you know, look at it. This is such such a you know this this all this does is edit text files, and I get all this for free from Google or Amazon or whoever. There's a built-in calendar app for free. Why would I ever pay for a calendar app? Uh, Well, just to, just to throw one out there. So fantastical is an interesting area, right? Like, so part of it is always the, the competing with the built-in apps, right? That's always been true, right? There's, you know, there's always been a text editor on, you know, simple text and teach text going back to the day. And so, you know, you've always, that's like a baseline level of, Okay, if you're going to sell an app, it has to be better than the thing that's built in free. Right. But but when people think that, well, if this one's free and yours is paid, a dollar sounds fair to me. You know, where where do you even start if that? And and again, I'm not exaggerating that there are people who think that one dollar might be a fair price for a professional calendar app. Well, and they think $1 might be a fair price for life. Like, in right. other words, the thing needs to work as long as my iPhone works or as long as right. iOS is an iOS, right? right. Um, and it's, you know, it, it it's all gotten more complicated, too, because at least on the app, if we just talk about the Apple ecosystem for indie development, in some ways, it's this plethora of riches where we've got all of these extra devices now, like phones. And it's amazing to be able to have your app on the phone too. And it's in your pocket, you know, right? You, you know, it's kind of awesome. Like when you got started making Fantastical, uh, well, 2010, maybe you could imagine because the iPhone was out, but you know, you go back far enough to when you first started making apps and the idea that your app might be in your jeans pocket all the time. That's awesome, right? 
It's like, that's oh, yeah. super cool. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was even a very early days for the iPhone when Fantastical came out. So it was still, it was at that, that, that first initial thing where it's like, okay, apps are allowed and you're sort of like not really sure what yeah. it is or what it means or what it could do. But yeah, no, it was incredible. But you've, you know, but then there's an expectation where if an app can sync and let's just use the word sync loosely because there's different ways of syncing, but more or less, if you can use the same thing from your phone and on your iPad and on your Mac, people expect to be able to, they want to be able to, but it's not really clear how you're supposed to monetize that as a developer. And it is, if not three times the work, it might be more than three times the work, right? That it's, cause yeah. it's, it, it's, you think like, well, the, the iPad app is really just a, bigger version of the iPhone app. So it shouldn't be three times the work. And there's certain data models that you can use that you can reuse across the thing. But then you've got to make sure all of the integration and syncing works, right? It is, it's a lot more work. And yet you, people expect, well, I paid for the iPhone version. Why in the world do I have to pay for the Mac version? Yeah, right. They see it as one app. I'm, I paid for Fantastical. Give me it all. Right. Yeah. So, uh, Fantastical used to be, let's just be specific on Fantastical. So the, the traditional way to sell apps would be you'd sell a version for a price. The user would decide, okay, I'll buy it. And then you'd, you know, you'd get a license code or in the app store or whatever. But then all of a, you know, whatever the mechanism is, you know, it unlocks it and now you have it. And then if a new version came out a year later, two years later, you would get upgrade pricing for it. New users would pay, still pay the new price, and existing users would get some kind of discounted price. And this worked for a long time in the industry, you know, at all levels. You know, it's how uh, everything from Microsoft Office to, you know, uh, some sixteen-year-old kid shareware app, you know, for the Mac worked and monetized. Um, right, and it doesn't work anymore because the app store doesn't support that model and never, never has. And by this time, I think we can safely say never will. And yeah, we, we, we were at a weird time when Fantastical came out because here's what's even crazier, John, the Mac app store launched in January of 2011. I remember this. And we launched Fantastical in May, 2011. And when we were developing Fantastical in 2010, a little bit before we, we didn't know the Mac app store was coming necessarily. Right. So we were planning on just selling the app directly. Like, like we used to. Right. right. So that was really a weird change for us because now we're selling it on the Mac app store and our own store and apps still weren't, I would say differently valued then. I don't even want to necessarily call them devalued. I, I've been thinking a lot about it since we switched the subscription. I know you're going to ask me about that a bit, but like, I feel like apps aren't devalued. I feel like apps are valued differently mm. than than you and I in the old school days prior to the app store. Mm. Um, well, tell me how. How do you think that they're valued? You're saying by users? Yeah. So I think what happens is, you know, someone buys a phone, which the irony is that an iPhone is very expensive, right? An iPhone's not certainly a cheap thing. Um not that not that an Android phone is necessarily cheap. You can get cheap Android phones, but in the sense of the iPhone land, it is not something anyone would ever describe as very cheap. Um, it is a premium product, so it shouldn't be. And that's sort of why I point this out. The iPhone's a premium product. You pay more for it because it's premium. Well, that means the apps on the iPhone platform are more premium. Therefore, yes, there's going to be free ones like Facebook or Instagram or Uber or DoorDash or whatever, but then there's going to be also premium apps. 
Yeah, there's going to be also bad apps. There's going to be free apps. There's going to be hobby apps. There's going to be apps that just are overpriced and whatever. But what I find interesting about the whole iPhone scene is that the iPhone's a premium product that you pay more for because it's premium. But then when there's a premium app, people's value of that app is that it should be free or very, very, very cheap. Mm. And I think the reason for that is because the software that's built into the iPhone is free and really good. And third-party apps, services, whether it be Twitter or Facebook, whatever, their apps aren't that bad either. I mean, we can get into that, but I'm just saying in general, they're, they're apps, right? They do what they're supposed to do. And I think that's where the, 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 um, what did I say? I didn't say devalued. I said where the different value yeah. or, uh, you know, yeah, I, I feel like it's people's, people's idea of what an app should be valued is very, very different based upon what they paid for the device and what they get with it for free. Yeah. And it's, Different ways of looking at how much you pay total, right? Like, so, you know, one of the ways that phones are so expensive is it doesn't even matter which phone you start with. Your monthly, the phone is useless without paying a, a phone provider for service. And I know that US, US users pay more than users do in Europe and, and other countries. But at a basic level, it, at least here in the US, for decent phone service, you're paying at least $40 a month and probably more, right? Like if you're on Verizon oh, yeah. or AT&T, you're definitely paying more. Um, and if you told somebody, like, how long does a typical person use their phone? Let's say two or three years. Maybe that's extending, you know, to three years. So if you take 36 months times just 50 bucks a month, that's $1,800 in phone service, right? And that's if you're only paying mm-hmm. 50 right. bucks a month. So if you told somebody when they came into the to the to buy their iPhone, that whatever the cost of the iPhone is, you know, average selling price eight hundred dollars. Oh, and by the way, you need to pay us eighteen hundred dollars to have phone service for the next three years. They 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 would they would look around for hidden cameras. They'd be like, "What are you talking about? Eighteen hundred, two thousand dollars for phone service for the next three years? That you're you're out of your mind. I'm going to go buy my phone somewhere else. You're you know you're on crack." Uh, but that's what you're going no to pay, way, right? Because, but, but they've they've right. internalized it that they only pay it monthly, and that you can only pay it monthly. And I sort of feel like that's what's happened with app prices in a way where you get so much for free, it's just worn it down. And when it, it, you're approached with the simple, if you could really just open the books and look at the, you know, be the accountant for an independent software developer and look at, you know, salary and healthcare and whatever other, all the other costs that go into running a company and the number of developers and designers that you need to, to pick your app, you know, maybe it's a game, maybe it's a utility, whatever. Uh, and then figure out how many users you'll have and multiply that by a number to get just a baseline break even price. It's way higher than people think because they're not thinking of oh, it yeah. in the same way that like what you pay for phone service over the life of your phone is way higher than a lot of people would think is right, even though it, they're actually paying it. Which, yeah, there's no question. And, and there's support crews. We need support, right? Because right? we've got to be able to reply on Twitter and support and get back to customers with bugs or whatever it is, right? Like, right. The, the, it is it is actually, if you're going to have an app that does a lot of stuff like syncing and multiple platforms and all the stuff we do with Fantascal, you need a crew. You can't just do it with one or two people. You can't. It's not, a, it's not possible. It's, it's just not possible. I can't mention this person by name, <laughs> but I don't even think that... It, he makes indie software anymore, but there was a, a well-known developer 
from like 15 years ago who had some very popular apps and was making, I think, a good business in it, and but had nobody helping with support. And I think I heard this story from Cable Sasser, our mutual friend at Panic, who we could talk a bit more yep. about. But Cable asked him one day, well, how do you do this? How do you how do you ever get anything done without support? And he goes, oh, it's easy. I hardly spend any time at all. And he goes, well, what do you do? What's, you know?" And Cable's thinking like, I think, it was Cable, but thinking like, does he have some magical, everybody's always looking for the magical bug tracking system that will actually, right. oh my God, we switched to this and all of a sudden our support, you know, 20 hours of support turned into one hour. Oh my God, what is it? He goes, I hey, know it's just email. Everybody just emails. And he goes, well, how do you do it? And he goes, oh, it's easy. I just open up the email and I do select all and then I hit the delete key. <laughs> then I go, <laughs> go back to work. I gave, Ignorance is bliss, and he laughed right? and he's like, no, really, what do you do? And he looked at him and he's just like, no, no, that's, <laughs> that's what I do. And the inbox is filled up with support. I just select all and then I hit delete and then I go back to work and I make my next version. And, you know, the irony is if the app is that good, you could do that. <laughs> well, if, if their emails are you there, they are. <laughs> but I'd never do it, but you could do it. I, that's so funny. Uh, <laughs> but it is, it's an issue and it costs money. And, you know, oh, support is very, very hard. It actually is as, as we're getting bigger yeah. and as the app is getting more complicated, support is actually like the biggest yeah. problem because we want our customers to be happy. So on the flip side, though, there were problems with that old model of software. And one mm-hmm. of the problems was that the only way to get, when, when, when you sort of reached, uh, what's the word? Saturation, market saturation, where if you've been established and you're around for a while and, you know, you're not getting new users, you've got a large existing user base and you're only making money from the existing users by selling upgrades, then you've got to time these upgrades in a way that they come out regularly enough that the company's revenue is regular in some way, right? But like in That's that right. model, when you look, and you know, I worked at Barebone Software 20 years ago, and I'm friends with so many people in the industry. But when you sell software that way, you you really do have to internalize that the graph of your company's revenue has these bizarre spikes around releases, mm-hmm. you know, and you have right. to internalize that, like. The three months before your version 6.0 is coming out, you think, you know, you've got it scheduled. You think you're in the final beta stages. You think you're about two or three months from shipping, but you've been working on it for, you know, 15 months. And so maybe your revenue is really low. You've got to like have that gambler's mentality of knowing it's okay that our company's revenue right now for this month is unsustainably low. Because we're heading towards this big release, and that's when we're going to get all these upgrades. And then when the release happens, and it's a hit, and you make all this money, and it's like, oh, people love it because you added X, Y, and Z features that they've been waiting for, and they're happy to upgrade right away, and they're spreading the word, and uh, Gruber linked to it from Daring Fireball, and people are upgrading. It's all great. You have to then internalize that that amount of money isn't your new baseline, and you can't go out and buy a Lamborghini, you know? A hundred percent. You've now you've now normalized what you need to keep the machine right. running to provide that level of support, right. right? Compare and contrast with, say, running a restaurant, which is a re- famously a very hard business, and a lot of them, you know, most of them tend to not make it and go under, and that's before this whole COVID thing, which has ravaged the industry. But for the most part, a restaurant makes money on a daily basis that pays the money for the day that it. You know, there's not like all of a sudden you make so much money 
on one day of the year that it funds the rest of the year, right? It's, you know, yep. software development in that model was a feast or famine and you, you know, a very brief feast and then not really a famine, but it would trickle off and then you'd come out with a new release. But then the the problem with this idea is that sometimes there are features you want to add that take a long time. And when do you, Absolutely. when do you fit that in? And then well, how do you time it? How do you time it to right. something that also Apple isn't doing with widgets? For example, we had to get widgets done. It's a big right. feature. Apple, you know, would love it. Right. And then we have to put something else on hold. Right. Right. You have to prioritize it. And well, wait, can we charge people for this? Um, you know, or just look at some of the stuff, just mundane stuff that people shouldn't have to worry about. But if, you know, it, 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 Apple says, hey, 32-bit binaries are being deprecated in a future OS release. Now you've got to spend time moving your whole code base to 64-bit. You have to, or else your app won't run. How do you, you can't sell that as, you know, the flagship tentpole feature of version 8.0 of your app is 64-bit compatibility. You know, it'll actually still run, but it might be a mountain of work, right? It's That's right. Apple Silicon was actually, you know, we're, we're, the transition, we're ready. Um, uh, what I could say about that is it was actually pretty easy. Like, it wasn't like a lot of stress, but that had to be done. We still had to take time away from other work to do that, right? Someone has to do that. And there were bugs, and there are issues, and we have to get that done. Widgets, we had to get that done. Um, even other stuff, Big Sur, we have changes coming for Big Sur. Got to get that done. And that doesn't include new stuff that we want to do. Right. And it's just, it really is... <laughs> A very interesting business of how much stuff you have to do just to be baseline right. before you actually do stuff that makes the thing great. <laughs> the, uh, you know, you can still double click the app and it will launch is not really considered a feature by users and shouldn't be. But at an engineering level, sometimes it's surprisingly difficult. And so, you know, well said, hence, well said. hence the overall industry shift of commercial software where the users pay the developers to use the software shifting from buying versions and paying for version upgrades to subscription pricing. Well, you, the funny you should bring that up because if you don't mind, I want to talk about subscriptions yeah. when we launched in January. Yeah. When we launched in January, our subscription. So we've been in business um, next year will be 10 years. So we'll say nine years as of you know, earlier this year. Changing to subscriptions was the biggest thing we knew we were going to do to our business, and it was the biggest fear we've ever had in the sense of this could go wrong. We didn't think it would go wrong, but we knew that it was the biggest change we had made since launching the app itself. And when we launched, we actually knew we were going to get attacked and people would be rude. Um, as you know, I advise a lot of companies and I've done a lot of products in the past, and I'm very, very, very into the scene and the industry. So it wasn't a surprise to me, but- we got attacked and people acted like we were the biggest jerks at launch. Like it really, really, really is bad. Anyone going from a paid app or even a free app to a subscription, every developer friend of mine, every company I've ever advised, every company I've ever worked with, it's always very hard at a transition to a subscription. Um, users feel slighted. I actually, I'm, interesting is that after now that I've had like nine or 10 months to debrief this, I actually empathize with users. I actually get why they're upset. I actually understand why they're so unhappy. I actually get why they're mad. I really, 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 really do. But what always is, is funny, and I don't understand why it happens is, as you said, double-clicking an app to launch is sort of a given. But 
the amount of work that we put into our subscription transition to provide the existing features harmoniously to continue, we did have some bugs that caused some confusion and we did have some things, you know, there's always rough spots and warts, but we really, really thought about, okay, we don't want this to be painful. So what do we do? They're going to wake up one morning, their app's going to change. It's going to look different. And it's going to say, oh, by the way, for new stuff from now on, you need to pay. And we get that. Change is hard. And I get that as a consumer. You don't ever want to see that. But we gave all the existing features to users. We gave them ongoing support. The app wouldn't sunset or die. We gave them, obviously, that means iOS 14 and, and stuff in future development would happen. And yet everyone was still super mad and attacked us and acted like we were the biggest jerks. And here's the thing. I actually understand why they think that. We changed what they liked about us. We changed that we were a $5 app that now they have to pay $3 a month or so to keep us. Um, but we also changed our business model. We're now a premium app with very, 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 not only powerful features, but really product, you know, productive features. And we have such a big roadmap that, okay, we didn't post the roadmap because we really don't want to announce future plans. <laughs> we definitely nod to Apple for that. But we have so much on our roadmap, John, that the value of that $3 a month that you're paying now isn't for what you got on January 29th when we launched with version 3.0. It's, for example, we just launched widgets. Widgets are free for everyone. The premium features of widgets you have to pay for, but the widgets themselves are free for everyone, not just even existing Fantastic Hell 2 users. Well, guess what? The development from premium funds that. Right. And yeah, anyway, so the point I'm just saying is, is that it's, 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 it's very interesting that subscriptions, even, and we're offering a free mode. So it's not like anyone is just, you're locked out of the app if you don't pay, but people really sure feel that way. And I don't really know what to advise, except it is better for our business. It is better for the roadmap we have, and it is absolutely better for us to be able to develop and release as soon as we've done something rather than having to wait for a, you know, a 2.0, 3.0, 4.0 in charge every two years or one year. Yeah. That was definitely part of the strategy of, you know, and, and as again, BB Edit, I'll just toss as an example, an app that's, you know, been in constant active development since 1992. Um, you know, it's been a commercial product since 1993. Um, and that is still, I guess, cause there still are paid updates outside the Mac app store, but it's always, you know, and, and Rich Siegel at Barebones has always had a good sixth sense knack for this, but it is part of the art is when, when to know that this feature should probably be held for version 7.0 and not released in version 6.5 because 7.0 is a paid up update and this is something worth paying for, but it's ready, right? Mm -hmm. It's, you know, and it hurts, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, uh, the difference between writing for a paywall uh, or writing a website that's free, you know, like with the difference between me and Ben Thompson. So everything I write, I can just put on Daring Fireball and everybody can read it. And Ben does a once a week column that's free for everybody and super popular. And it's the most popular thing he writes all week. But then he does a daily update for his members every week. And we were just talking about it on Dithering where it's like sometimes I'll have a really good daily update and he'll think like, oh man, I wish that was free so more people could read it. But then on the other hand, he knows that he's providing val that that gut feeling is providing value to the people who pay. Same thing with a feature where it's like, oh, I wish I could have just given this feature to everybody who's already using my app. 
But I'm also glad that the people who pay for it in version 9.0 or whenever it comes out feel like they're getting their money's worth for their upgrade. Subscription pricing eliminates that sort of thing. It's like, hey, the feature's ready. We're tested it. It's ready to go. We can release it now. And you get it on a regular basis and you don't. And then you, you can also avoid this sort of thing. And of all companies, you know, Microsoft is the one who's most famously been bitten by stacking too many things behind a major update, right? I mean, they famously almost ran the whole Windows platform into the ground after Windows XP by making Windows, what was going to be called Windows 7, I guess, so ambitious. You know, the whole file system will be replaced by an advanced uh, SQL database or something. And all this stuff that wound up not shipping, and in the meantime, they were stuck on the same major version of the most popular desktop operating system in history until that point for eight years or something, right? You can get caught behind that sort of thinking of, we're going to make version 2.0 so awesome that everybody's going to beg us to take their money. And then all of a sudden, 2.0 never ships, you know, because you've you've built it up into this thing. Whereas if you don't have that motivation of making it so awesome that everybody will pay for it, if everybody's already paying a regular monthly subscription, you just ship the features as they're ready. And so, you know, you don't get this amazing, holy crap, they added 13 amazing features all at once. You get a feature here, you get a feature there, you get a feature there. Um, you know, it's a different mentality. I think it's since we launched since we launched in January, me as a producer director, I will say this. It is such a great feeling that we can see something and be like, okay, we're going to do that. And if we think it's more important than something that was planned, then we, then we pivot, we do it. And we're now developing fantastical and other stuff that's in development at a much better pace than we ever did charging every two years or every one year. And actually, we were, we were, we were kind of crazy. I don't know. I should actually look at our version history quick, but we really, really, really didn't have, you know, maybe we should have had more. Maybe it was bad we didn't have more, but we really didn't have a lot of upgrades, right? So we had Fantastical 1 that came yeah. out in 2011, and then we had Fantastical 2 come out in, where is it, um, in March 2015. So it was literally four years until an upgrade from one to two, right? Mm-hmm. And then that means that from two to three, it was almost six years, right? So it's not like we're updating or, or sh- shipping every one to two years, but that idea of, all right, we want to do this really big feature. Oh, we're going to hold it for the next major release because it's so much work and we want to, you know, we have to get reimbursed for all of our work because yeah. it takes so long. Now we just develop and it really is such a different, Roadmap. Our, our roadmap is really big. And, you know, for anyone who is listening, it is a fa- either Fantastical user or a Fantastical hater. Um, we have a lot planned that you haven't seen. And widgets were one of them. Widgets were free. We have a lot of stuff. No, we really do that. Like that, that $3 a month, we, we, we want to return on that investment and we're going to. Well, and uh, let me just say this in Fantastic. When you say it was a $5 app, you're talking about the iPhone app. Right. It was yeah, the iPhone app. The Mac app was $50. That's true. Right. But that, that, believe it or not, that was even longer. This is the crazy part, John. That was even longer of an in-between versions because the, um, the original Fantastical one had come out like shortly after Fantastical for Mac. The original Fantastical one came out in 2012. Fantastical two, this is going to blow your mind, came out in 2013. Okay. So two years later, but sorry, one year later. 
But 2013, that app was a $5 app, which for seven years was updated with all the new stuff for seven years without an additional cost. <laughs> so it was like 78 cents a year. You got it. You got it. And my, and yeah, I mean, you know, and yeah, Apple it, took it, 30% of the 78 cents. Exactly. Exactly. And look, everyone will say, oh, you sold all these copies or you'd sell more if it was this. You say, yeah, there's lots of ways to skin this cat. And there are. But we love the model we've done now. While there's still a lot of negative reviews, and that is the number one thing if Apple would change anything, is to change how the App Store reviews work and to actually show reviews from those who have paid <laughs> versus those who are using the free mode. Because if someone hates us, and they don't like the subscription model, guess what? They, they rate us down and say their subscription stinks one star, right. right? Okay. If you're looking as John Gruber for our app and all you see are, are subscription hates, but you think the app looks good, you don't care, right? You tune it out. But why, if Apple's pushing the subscription model and it's better, and we actually do think it's better, why isn't the app store fixing the problem of letting free users basically harm an app on their subscription model rather than say, okay, here's, here's a tab. Here's people who have actually bought the app and subscribed. Even if they've canceled, that's fine. But you basically can leave a review for free and just bash someone. And is that really truly a, a reflection of the app? Well, think about this. Like apps are one of the few things where you can get caught up in that. Like, let's say you want to decide whether to watch a new movie, you know, a new Avengers movies coming out or something. And you don't know if it's good or not. Do you want to go see the reviews? Have you, you know, I don't know where you go to read reviews now, but, you know, wherever that is, like maybe you go to Metacritic or maybe you go to Rotten Tomatoes or you just go, maybe you have a favorite publication like, you know, The New Yorker and you want to read Anthony Lane's review. Um, mm -hmm. You'd never go to see what, what are people saying about this movie and then have it be riddled with complaints about how expensive the movie theater is. And, you know, and, and, <laughs> it's, and it's, it's all, true. you know, it's and true. I took my kid and he wanted a bag of Twizzlers and they wanted $7 for the Twizzlers. And it's like, this is, uh, this is highway robbery. And say, so, yeah, you're right. It is highway robbery. A bag of Twizzlers should not cost $7, but that's nothing to do with the movie. You know what I mean? Like if you want to lodge a complaint, that AMC theaters charges too much <laughs> for a movie. You, 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 you know, it's a free country and maybe you're right that they do charge too much, you know, or, or the rental is too much. You know, if you go to, you know, now that these movies can't come out in theaters and, and you can pay $20 to see Mulan or $30, I guess it is to see Mulan on Disney plus, um, you know, do you think that's too much? Maybe it is too much. I don't know, but that doesn't get conflated with the reviews of Mulan. When I go to read the review in the New York Times of the new live action Mulan, it's it's not 700 words about the fact that it costs $30. It's a review of the movie. And the app store I, I think it's a byproduct of reviews being free. Right. I really do. I think it's because you can just go right. and just review the app by just downloading right. it. The barrier to entry is so easy, yeah. John. But the, but and and this gets to a point too where where people think the phone app should be cheap and maybe a Mac app should be more expensive, you know, and so maybe like the old dynamic in some common sense back of their brain way, the idea that Fantastic Cal for Mac was fifty bucks and Fantastic Cal for iPhone was five dollars sounds about right. But from your perspective, making the app that that's not that's crazy, right? Because it. Yeah, it is just because the computer is smaller doesn't mean it's less work, right? Like the iPhone app isn't 
easier to make. Isn't it actually more work? Right. Isn't it more work? Because we have to create a sync engine to make them all sync. And it's sometimes it is harder to put functionality on a small screen than a big screen. It's easier to get lazy as a designer and say, well, we'll just add another menu over there. Well, you can't add a menu on a screen with no room for another menu, you know. Design is much more challenging on the iPhone, absolutely. Whatever the difference is, even if you could somehow prove that it somehow is less engineering work to make an iPhone app than the Mac app of comparable functionality, which I would dispute right there, but it certainly isn't a factor of 10. That's crazy that it, you know. No way. But that's what people think. And so, you know, I would say fundamental to the complaints that you guys got for Fantastical in particular. To me, Fantastical, because it's intended to be a great app on the phone and the iPad and the Mac and even, you know, your watch. You guys have a watch app, right? Yeah, the app, our our Apple watch app. I'm, I'm really super happy with how it turned out. It's very, very, very productive on your wrist. You get to see your tasks, your events, your up next, the weather. It's really powerful on your watch. I'd actually say we overshot because a lot of things we're trying to do, we're really pushing the limits of the watch. But I just want to hype it up because really it, it was, it was, we probably shouldn't have done it. I say that and I should know that, yeah, I don't use apps on my watch, so I didn't know for sure. And I'm still wearing my it's review. I'm wearing my review watch where I haven't synced over my apps, but uh, I figured you did. I knew you got to get Fantastic Hell on there. You got to get Fantastic Hell on But anyway, if you, yeah. basically the problem you guys run into is that subscription deal is a great deal if you use Fantastic Hell across multiple platforms, right? From Mac to phone to watch. And $3 a month, all of a sudden, you know, you can see it. And if you really only ever use the iPhone app and you used to pay $5 once in 2013 (laughs) and use it forever, and now you want $3 a month to get everything, it feels like a ton of money. And, you know, and I think the response would be, but wait, you, there is a free mode that still has all the features from Fantastic Cal 2. And people, they don't want to hear it. They want, I, I, you know what I mean? Like, and I feel like the, 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 my sympathy, I think they're wrong. I don't think they're thinking about this right. I think they're blinded by, uh, r- bad assumptions about how everything works and should work. But I think that the, to be sympathetic to them, what they want is they want the best fantastic how. And the best one is That's the right. one you have to pay for. And all of a sudden, instead of $5 once several years ago, it's $3 a month, it's a big difference. No, no doubt. And I I have truly started to empathize with everyone who's upset in that here. They want the best Fantastical. They don't want to pay what they paid. They want. There's even users who have said, well, can't you do an in-app purchase or something smaller that's sort of helpful that we don't have to go on going? And the answer is no, because then if we fragment that, even if it makes those people happy, now our development time has now been split between them and the main app. And again, that removes what the subscription has done for us. Um, people will call it a money grab. It's not a money grab at all. We know how much we need to make versus how much we're making. And what the subscription does is it gives us a reliable income revenue stream that grows over time with subscription subscribers that stay on, right? And we can now count on our revenue and just develop. We don't have to worry. We don't have to come up with gimmicks to, to sell, right? We, we're just, we're just, to be honest, we're the best indie developers we've ever been right now. Hmm. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, um, Let's, so, speaking of other indie developers and other models, um, a 
big new launch just last week is from our friends at Panic. Their Nova, uh, they call it a code editor, text editor. But it's, you know, it's it's hard to what Nova is is hard to categorize. You know, fundamentally, I guess it's a text editor for programmers, but it's sort of like a IDE. And, you know, for example, and it has extensions and stuff. And you can do things like if you have a play date, Panic's upcoming little handheld Game Boy style video game player, the IDE for making play date games is Nova. And you can, you know, same way that you can. When you're in Xcode, you want to build your iPhone app, you do a command R to build and run, and it runs. You can do that in Nova to build and run your Playdate game, and it runs in a simulator on your Mac, or you can connect it via USB and have it build and run and install it right on your actual you know, Playdate device. It's a very ambitious app, um, and it's sort of a sequel to their old uh, code editor, Coda, uh, which they... <laughs> complicated sold the name to and turned into Panic's code editor because they knew they weren't sticking with it long term and were replacing it with Nova which really is both a replacement but also sort of a shift in direction anyway it's a great app it is a Mac very 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 great app by the way it, very great super app super ambitious it is the sort of thing that is so ambitious that it less in less talented hands is the sort of thing that could sink a company and, you know, 40 years from now, poor Cable Sasser would have a long gray beard and be like, it's coming out any day. Um, but it shipped. It's here. It is fantastic. It is it, it is exuberant. And if you love really, you know, that term, I think Brent coined Mac-assed Mac apps. It is a Mac-assed Mac app. And a lot of the news in programming editors that people use on the Mac over the last five to 10 years have been things that aren't Mac-assed Mac apps. They're electron dinguses that maybe have tons of features and maybe you listening use one and you like it. And maybe it's good for all sorts of reasons, but it's not good at being a Mac-assed Mac app. And Nova is very much a Mac-assed Mac app, which is great. But they have an interesting pricing model. Um, What they're doing is they're selling it for... Uh, $99. And if you already owned their old app, Coda, you can upgrade for $79. So, so far, it sounds, you know, this sounds like what we were talking about, right? This is the old way. You get an upgrade price if you owned Coda and you pay $99 um, if you're new. But here's where it's sort of different is you get from whatever day you pay, you get a year of all their software updates. Whatever they update for the next 12 months, you get. And then when that update of 12 months from the date of your buying a license is over, you no longer get software updates, but your copy of Nova keeps working on your computer. You just don't get software updates for it. And if you want to, you can sign up to pay $49 a year after that. So let's say you pay $100 today. One year from today, you know, your your updates from that $100 are over and your $49 a year, it is a subscription that you're paying, kicks in and then you keep getting, whenever they introduce software updates, you just keep getting them going forward. But if you don't sign up for that $49 subscription, the version you had 12 months after purchase, that's yours to keep, keeps working technically. Maybe a year later, there's some new feature they have that comes out. You're like, I would like that. And you can just get back on the upgrade gravy train for $49. 
Yeah, and and to be to be fair, uh, we always say it's about three dollars a month for Fantastical. We could say it's forty a year, but for their forty nine a year, they're about four dollars a month. And for yeah. a really you know expert professional tool that they're selling, four dollars a month is ridiculously cheap. Yeah, it's you know, and again, and you're like, well, I I don't use a text editor worth four dollars a month. Well, then you're not in the market. You know what I mean? This is a professional power tool, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can go to Home Depot and find you know, very expensive saws or nail guns, like the best nail gun they sell. You're like, well, why in the world would I spend all this money on a nail gun? I don't even shoot nails. Well, what are you looking? Why Why are you complaining about the price? You, you don't shoot nails into exactly. the wall. Whereas if you spend- Yeah, their target customer wants to buy that app. Right, you live in it, you know, and- it it's an it, you now they're not in the Mac app store. And I wrote about this and some people complained about, uh, you get the main complaints, you, the developer, like- and yeah. and panic the developers of the app. I get the secondary complaints as the person who writes about these apps from the people who don't like the pricing model. They complain to yeah. me then about, you know, celebrating or just mentioning it without they 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 yell at me for not complaining about the things that they complain about. Um <laughs> why are you supporting the things that we hate? <laughs> but it's you know, you can't please everybody. You know, I guess the only way you can make everybody happy is if you became fabulously wealthy and funded a company to make these amazing apps and gave them to the world for free, I guess. Because then I would bet you that would not even work either because there'd be something. Well, there'd be, you know, p- p- privacy people thinking that there's a scam. Right. There would be, but, I, I want to pay you. I don't know. There, there would be something. Well, it's noteworthy that nobody's done that, <laughs> right? The George Soroses <laughs> of the world have not yeah. devoted their lives to foundations to make fantastic independent software that they give away to people for free. Um, I'll make a promise. If this thing blows up bigger than I think it's going to, which it's not, if it goes that crazy big, I'll make fantastic hell free for everyone. Although I shouldn't say that because someone <laughs> will hold me to that. So forget it. That but whole thing was a fallacy. The difference, the difference here between a regular, what we think of a subscription versus um, what Panic is doing. And what Panic is doing, to give credit to another very good indie app, Sketch, which is an illustration app with a decided market towards people using it to illustrate user interfaces in particular. Certainly that's where I know Sketch best from. Um, has yeah, a, they did a great job with that. And they have a very similar model and they've had, you know, years of success with it and um, both with the app, which has won Apple Design Awards and is very popular and ongoing. And But the same sort of thing where the difference is with most subscriptions, if you cancel your subscription, the app either stops working or you lose functionality. Whereas with the Sketch and Nova model, when you stop paying, what you have keeps working, but you just don't get updates. But even that, technically, even just talking about obsolescence, eventually you will run out of time and people will complain, right? Like, hypothetically, someone who has been in, let's say somebody had the foresight 12 13, 14 years ago to invent this pricing model then when it wasn't really necessitated, necessitated by the market forces, but they came up with this idea then. And we went right. through the 32-bit to 64-bit transition. And people who had paid and said, I don't need any new features, but they would feel entitled years after the fact to that 64-bit update. Well, wait, that's not, you know, that 
that should be included free, even though I'm not paying for updates anymore because my app won't even launch anymore. And it's like, well, you know, pay the money, right? That, that, that model is definitely, to me, if we could have done that with being on the app store and how things work, we looked at that model. And I think for Nova and Sketch, it makes sense. They're professional tools. They're off the app store. It really makes a lot of sense. But there's also a lot of bookkeeping you have to keep track of right. in terms of what features work and don't. If there is a bug that kills the app because of the OS, do you really fix it or not? You know, like like there's a lot of implications and I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying nothing's perfect. Right. right? But I think for Nova and sketch being off the app store and being professional tools, that really is the way to go. You, you buy the app. You want to keep using it. And I think most people will keep using it and keep paying for it because they're professional tools. They want the updates. Yeah. And well, and I think it helps a little bit that they're Mac tools specifically. And again, I don't know. I don't even That's know. I'm point. not, I, I don't know. Is so an iOS companion, right? I, I, you know, I know, I, know. I know Panic had the Coda editor for iOS and, you know, but, you know, Pan- Diet Coda. But Pat- Panic's been very clear over the years in their annual updates that when they tried to expand what they've made work on the Mac for decades, when they tried to do the same thing for iOS, it did not work for them financially, you know, that if, and, mm-hmm. and thankfully, you know, they didn't bet their company on it, it would have been ruinous. But that the the model they have had and continue to have to successfully sell delightful panic style software for the Mac was lost money f- for them on iOS. Um oh, definitely. You know, but I think this so I think it 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 it's a model again, you know, different apps have different markets and need different things. Like I think what works for Fantastic Help, a huge part of the reason is that you guys are literally on every single Apple platform. I guess you're not. All right, you're not. You're not. You don't have a TVOS app. Or a CarPlay app, which ironically, someone on Twitter asked us if we could make Fantastic Help for their car. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> we're, what I, makes I, more sense, a TV app or, or a car app? A car app probably makes I don't know if neither makes I actually don't know if neither makes sense. I, I mean, I, I have ideas already right. spinning in my head of what we could do, but I don't know, man. Like, yeah. I, I, don't, like I don't know if that's where we want to be. It seems to me that using the Siri voice assistant makes more sense in the car than using an exactly. actual app and saying... You know, hey Dingus, when's my next appointment, or what's the address of the place I'm trying to get to, etc. Would work. Um, the other app I want to mention, I want to mention an app called Agenda. Have you seen Agenda? Oh yeah, it's a and they have a similar model in the App Store, and yeah. they're making it work with the App Store actually. Yeah, and so Agenda is a really again, and they they sponsored Daring Fireball a while back. Fantastic Al sponsored Daring Fireball. So you know, preface this with whatever you want as a disclaimer that these are people who sponsored my site, but I'm saying good things about them simply because it's a really great and interesting app. But Agenda is a it very is. interesting hybrid of a sort of notes plus to dos plus scheduled to do's. So it kind of goes into calendaring and not calendaring, but time to do's, but basically it's a great name. It is an agenda. It's a fantastic name. The name's name's perfect. Delightful design. Very, very, very nice design that is sort of, oh yeah, this fits right at home on a modern uh, Apple system, but also is very branded and feels, you know, you appreciate it because you know what I'm, you know, Fantastic Hal has that. Oh, yeah. Anyway, their model. Gen is very well done. Very well done. Yeah. And their model for this sort of new way of approaching monetization is that you don't pay for versions, you pay for features. 
And so you pay for Agenda, and then you get the pay. You know, there's a free version. You could download it and use it, and it's useful and interesting for free. And then they have more features that you have to pay for. And then if you pay for them, you get the paid features. And as time goes on, they will add new paid features. But since they came out after you paid, you have to pay for those features. And if you don't, if you're, if the feature is, um, that now the pen, when you use the Apple pencil can write in, uh, uh, purple ink for the first time. And you're like, well, I would never want to write in purple ink, so I'm not paying for that feature. And you don't have to pay for it. And then later on, when they come out with a feature that you can make the Apple pencils shoot uh, emojis all over your agenda, and you're like, I need that. And, you know, then you pay for that feature. I just made up those features. They're they're not actual features of agenda at all, but that's what I'm saying. (laughs) You pay for the feature. And I've seen people say... And it's already chimed up in my comments on Nova. Like, hey, you say that Nova can't be in the App Store. I didn't say they can't be in the App Store. I said they're not in the App Store. And the exact model that that Nova is using is not technically possible in the Nova, in the App Store. No, Agenda proves that something sort of along those lines is possible if you design it with App Store rules and systems in, in mind. But the other thing that people are ignoring is that the team behind Agenda is doing a lot of work to make that work behind the scenes. Where they're in a ton of work, ton of work, and it might be worth it. It may well be worth it, and I hope they're doing well because it's a great app from good people, and it deserves to thrive. But do not underestimate the fact that they are building permanent scaffolding in the app to tie features to paid upgrades that you've paid along the way and doing it in a way that any, you know, they, they can't quite predict what combination of features you might've paid for, but the whole app still needs to function. Right. I did realize actually something with Nova and sketch and agenda. That's interesting about their model. They're, they're a pay once a year, once an upgrade or whatever it is model, right? You have to pay the full 49, 59, whatever the subscription model lets you pay monthly, right? right? Without locking in a year. So, the one thing with those apps is that you do have to pay a bigger amount up front to get in, right. right? Where with Fantastical, yeah, it does turn off, quote unquote, you go to free mode. It doesn't just stop working. It's just the premium feature stop working. But you do have the ability to do the $4.99 a month as a monthly as you go and cancel at any time. And it's just interesting because that is a lower bar to entry to try it out than the other apps as well. Yeah, I totally agree. Right. And then and, and the... Just interesting. I never thought about that before. You know, it... it it's complicated. <laughs> it is complicated. All I, if there's anything I would ask, it is that users should have sympathy for the plight of the indie developer, and that uh, it's it is you know we're all in this together in terms of wanting awesome pro level indie apps, you know, like BB Edit and Nova and Fantastical and Agenda, and the list can go on and on. You know, everything from the Omni Group, and uh, you know, I can't start listing the apps that would qualify, but we want them to keep thriving as businesses. Um, and it's not simple. <laughs> and I guarantee you, I've never met any of them. Even the guy I was mentioning who, whose support method was select all delete, delete support. He still cared about his users and, uh, you know, he wasn't trying to rip them off. I've never met an indie developer who wanted to do, do, do anything other than to, to give their users value for their dollar spent and appreciated it. Yeah. 
And, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're trying to work around this ecosystem that Apple has built, right? We're still as Apple developers anyway. We have the iOS, we have iOS, iPad, iOS. I'm just saying we have all these things that we still have restrictions when we submit an app. Okay. Nova and Sketch do not. They're off of it, but Agenda does. Right. And regardless, there's still also limitations of just developer tools, right? That Nova and that Nova and Sketch have to make work. It, it, it's not just as easy as do whatever you want and make the best decisions. There's also decisions that have to be made that were already made for you. Did you see Panic's tweet the other day where they're like, I can't tell you what a relief it is to just issue a software update when it's ready because they have a, a Nova 1.1 update and they... Exactly. They released it on one. Oh, yeah. And I thought of you immediately because you had just texted me the night before that you were, I think it was the night, the very night before. And you were like, I think we'll be ready for our widgets update the next day. Um, yep. And instead you woke up and it was like, well, it was approved. <laughs> like you, you literally went to bed not knowing <laughs> when your software was going to. Literally went to bed not knowing. We even have that with test flight because you know, test flight has to be approved. Right, now, right? right. So when you have a new app, just even to send to testers. We can't even have testers test our app until it's approved. <laughs> it's it's very restrictive, and you know, again, it, there's a lot of things we have to do because we're forced to do. Right. Uh, anyway, thank you for being here, Michael. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's a good conversation. Uh, everybody, thanks. Likewise. So, the best place to find out more about Fantastic Hal, uh, what's what's the best URL? Flexibits.com, F-L-E-X-I-B-I-T-S.com. Uh, and you can go and find out more about Fantastic Hal. Uh, Michael Simmons on Twitter. You're, you're on Twitter. What's your Twitter address? It's at MacGuitar, M-A-C-G-U-I-T-A-R. It's a throwback from the old days of Mac. You can play in guitar. So um, that was it. I don't know. Is Nick I came up with? 90 something and it just always has been around i i have a weird mental thing as soon as you started saying it, i was like oh yeah he's mac guitar but i can't remember what people's twitter avatars or names are i i you know the only one whose i whose name i remember is syracuse's because it's just syracuse everybody else yeah. i forget like is it marco is it marco arment is it uh you know if you if you're if your avatar is, or if your twitter name is anything other than your last name i've i'll forget it um, but that's where people can go see you on Twitter. Uh, let me thank our sponsors, our great sponsors, all of them repeats. I love them all to death. Squarespace, where you can sign up to make a website. Feels, where you can get premium CBD delivered right to your door. And Linode slash Linode, <laughs> our favorite cloud hosting provider whose name we're, neither of us is 100% sure how to pronounce. 